Chatter Chatter, where October never dies. My name is Mr. Craigers, and I'm going to be one of your hosts this evening. And I am Miss Melboy. I'm going to be your other host, but not your only other host, kind of, a little bit. <laughs> That's right, because tonight, on our 85th episode, we have a very special guest with us. Uh, he's no stranger to the show. He's been around before, so many of you are probably familiar with him and his work. We'd like to welcome back writer, journalist, podcaster, and Halloween home enthusiast, Matt Shore. Hi, thank you. Co-host, <laughs> intruder, uh, uh, night stalker, whatever we want to go with. Oh, so. boy. But the, but the nicest version of an intruder that there could possibly be. There you go. I'm, I'm the intruder that breaks in and then sits down and has a beer with you. Yeah, yeah. The friendly kind of intruder. The Canadian intruder. Yeah. <laughs> So Matt is here with us tonight to talk a little bit, a little bit about uh, his latest project that he's got going on, the Kickstarter for uh, his uh, webcomic um, Moby Dick, Back from the Deep. But before he tells us a bit about that, let's do some general chit-chat like we'd like to do about what people have been up to in the world of horror lately. What have you been reading? What have you been watching? Have you been listening to anything? Um, Miss Mel, what have you got for us? Um, well, as you know, I keep referencing episodes of American Hysteria at you, which is not a horror podcast per se. They do have, and I'm going to actually be referencing them a little bit in our main discussion today about Silence of the Lambs, but they've got episodes on horror films, on monsters, um, on true crime, and then they have one with Carmen Maria Machado on haunted houses. So that's been fun to go through that's all the things we love yeah i uh have been re-watching twin peaks for the first time since the return so that's been pretty good um and i just read a terrible book <laughs> oh no yeah i read um ararat by oh i forget his first name his last name's golden oh yeah your goodreads review was not no it's it's it basically the premise is it's a um group of archaeologists on top of Mount Ararat in Turkey, where it's supposedly the resting place of Noah's Ark after the flood, discover what appears to be an ancient boat. And inside the boat, there is a, uh, amongst the many human and animal skeletons, is a decidedly inhuman skeleton. Um, oh. It's a very interesting premise with very cardboard characters and... It basically just, you know, devolves into a uh, possession story. Um, it's kind of like Alien meets The Exorcist in like, in like Indiana Jones, but like none of the good parts. So <laughs> I was gonna say because if you were to pitch me that, it sounds yeah no, it sounds great on paper. Um, yeah. Do not recommend. <laughs> okay, so maybe yeah. maybe avoid that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good to know what to check out, but also not what to check out <laughs> when we do this. Yeah, this I got this book from one of those like little lending libraries in cities, so luckily I didn't, you know, it didn't it didn't hurt me too much. Yeah. Very good. Very good. No. Okay, okay, okay. Uh Matt, wh what's going on in your world? What are you um watching, reading, listening to these days? Does Invincible count as horror? It's rather, uh, it's rather grotesque, but uh, <laughs> I think 
we could. I think you could make that work. Yeah. I did see Godzilla versus Kong. It's the first time I've been able to see a big new release in I don't know since I had kids. So the the yeah. I, getting to see it was exciting. Yeah. Um, Is that okay? Feelings that the movie was okay. This is almost like the worst thing you can say about any sort of story. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, I know that I went into it with the, the acknowledgement, like, okay, I'm watching a movie about a giant monkey and a lizard fighting for the fate of the earth. Let's, let's not look too much let's here. Take everything but, with a grain of yeah. salt. <laughs> but I, I guess uh, the previous installments, like the first Godzilla, the first Kong Skull Island, were, were very kind of gritty and grounded. I'm not saying that they were Oscar worthy, but th- there was, I don't know, they, they really hooked me in a really effective way. And even Godzilla King of the Monsters really, really did. And this one, I don't know, it just felt kind of silly. Like, compared to It was the Batman you know, versus yeah. Superman of Godzilla versus Kong. <laughs> oh, man, that's, that's brutal. I can't say I didn't see Batman v Superman. Um. <laughs> I saw it more times than, than you want to have known because so many people were like, do you want to see it? And I was like, yeah, sure. Because I kept trying to be like, what is going on in this movie? Like, I'm going to get it this time. Do you think that means we're going to get like a seven hour cut of Godzilla versus Kong oh in God. a couple of years? Oh, I hope not. On HBO oh, Max. Dude, dude, start the hashtag right now. Restore the, who's the director? Restore that. Universe, <laughs> oh whatever. No, it, it, I don't want to say that it was bad, but there were just points that where I just, especially when the villain walked on camera, they never even made any announcement. I just looked at him. I was like, villain, villain. That's the bad guy right you. there he is. It's you, CEO of a major company. I don't even have to get to know Very you. Classic villain. That's so interesting you say that, CEO of a major company, because I was listening to a podcast by Ted Chiang, um, who did amongst other things, um, Story of Your Life, which is the basis of Arrival. Um, And he mentioned in sci-fi and like sci-fi horror stuff, ultimately what people are afraid of is capitalism. Like it's never like people are afraid of the gene altering therapy or people are afraid of the genetically modified monster. It's like what people will do with it. Um, Yeah. I found that always so interesting how you can peg that in in films that way. Well, it was... It was fun, and he actually his motivation was interesting. He he didn't like that Godzilla was the alpha of Earth. He wanted mankind to be on top. Like, okay, that's an interesting idea, but the the execution, I don't know. It, it was fun. I don't want to describe rip it apart like it was just some bad movie. I watched it at home for free, so for that it was great. But I don't know. Uh, the and there's one point where he starts talking, and I immediately thought of. The Incredibles, in Red Room, was that movie where they start talking about how the bad guys always start monologuing. Yeah. I could hear Samuel L. Jackson like rolling his eyes. He's monologuing. And I just know I'm like, okay, uh, I won't say anymore. Uh, spoiler alert. It, I don't know. Like, I don't want to. It's the big reveal of who the real bad guy monster was. Is that already out there? I, I will probably not see this movie. So I, I've seen it. So. <laughs> The big twist is that Mecha Godzilla is the bad guy, and right. I thought it was one of the weaker looks for Mecha Godzilla. I didn't really care for it, but that's just a matter of taste. But the moment he starts monologuing, I'm like, okay, Mecha Godzilla, this is where you show your true colors, come out and kill him, and he does. Like, okay, sure enough. Now, we, now we're now we can, yeah, that and the part where Kong picked up a magic battle axe that just I just face palms. Wait, like, what? Oh, maybe I should see this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should change my tune. <laughs> <laughs>
mean, it's worth watching for the silliness factor. I, I, you know, the, the MST3K, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just a little let down based on what came before. And I'm a big Godzilla fan, so I, I love that silliness. But I don't know this one, for whatever reason, I just kind of I facepalm so many times. Yeah, it didn't. I saw it too. It didn't quite. I mean, things got smashed, and that's kind of what you're signing up for. But like you were saying, Matt, when you look at the first three from this this new franchise, this new universe of these giant monsters, it's like, well, there was something more to those ones. And this one didn't feel like it had anything more to it. Yeah, like the, the first film with Kong really gave him some interesting character. Like, he did not like to kill things like he did it to survive he did it to protect but he didn't just go out of his way to just cause mayhem and i i was thinking during these battles in these city streets that they've never had time to evacuate so you know hundreds <laughs> of thousands of people right. i think you know it would have been kind of interesting if we just thrown in some shots of kong like trying to catch people as they fall out of buildings even if he fails just mm-hmm. the fact that he's doing it that would have been an interesting uh just an interesting little aspect of his character that we didn't get but of course we weren't in this for character development we were in this to see a bunch of giant monsters smashing buildings and they definitely delivered on that they sure did <laughs> i was clearly asking for too much <laughs> i wanted characters and themes <laughs> you know, what's all that about that's just that's just crazy i'll be curious to see where this franchise goes if it goes anywhere um, I have to imagine those are expensive movies to make. <laughs> yeah. And especially given the weird circumstances under which Godzilla yeah. versus Kong is being released. I, I don't know if they're going to look at the money it pulls in and, and say, okay, let's keep going. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the whole model has changed now with all the, the video on demand and it's not even on demand anymore. Like you don't, you don't even rent it. You just subscribe to a service. So it's like they get your money anyway. So yeah, yeah. No, that'll be very interesting. I definitely though, that is one of the things where as soon as like, you know, like green Knight, I'm in the theater for Dune mm. in the big IMAX. <laughs> so like, those are things I will shell out $25 to go see. I, I'm that way too. I have a handful that like, yeah, I'm I'm gonna go see that. But then there are others where I just like, eh, I'm gonna wait and see what they say, and then yeah. maybe I'll just rent it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, what about you, Mr. Carter's? What you got? Uh, so let's see. Um, so I just read uh Stephen King's latest novel, Later, um, which was uh the third in his uh, Hard Case Crime paperback series after Colorado Kid and Joyland. And um, it was pretty pretty good. Standard, like, 2010s King, I mm-hmm. guess. Uh, not overly long, though, which was nice. <laughs> the Outsider was pretty... I mean, a lot of things are overly long, obviously, as we know, but, like, I remember speaking specifically of 2010's King, like, The Outsider went on, like, a little bit longer than it needed to. Oh, yeah, a little bit long, a little bit, The Institute, a little bit long, I mean, he's, I don't think he has an editor anymore, because they're like, you don't need one. No one's gonna be that person who's gonna be like, well, I think maybe you should, um, consider, like, (laughs) 
I think you're right. I, yeah. I, I spoke with a fairly successful writer once who, who mentioned that. It's like, who's going to tell Stephen King he got something wrong at this point? Yeah, exactly. They, they, think, they think his work suffers for it. Yeah. <laughs> I think so too. So, but it's crazy because when these like these sort of slimmer stories come out, like Wendy's Button Box or um, uh, Elevation or later, like you get reminded that he can still tell a really concise story and he can still tell it really, really well. So she's like, I know you can do it. So when you're like <laughs> dropping these like 700 page door stoppers, like, ah, my favorite is the, yet. the like second or third edition of the stand or whichever edition it was where it was like 300 pages longer. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the one that I read. Yeah. It's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Steve. Um, um, that's fun though yeah but it was good um, you know classic kid with abilities basically he can shine he can see dead people mm-hmm. um, so there's ghosts and murder and all that fun stuff and then I've just been keeping up on the latest season of Creepshow on Shudder oh I did see you were tweeting about that yeah three episodes in I think so far uh, I think it's better than the first season of this little revival actually i'm enjoying it quite a lot um but no spoilers so i'll just leave it at that all right yeah <laughs> so matt you're with us today um to talk about your kickstarter yeah or your ongoing work uh moby dick back from the deep which was what brought you to us originally uh, way back on our Zombieland episode, yes, <laughs> we were talking about the first issue, even or the second. I so. I've I've lost track. It was the first or the second, you know. Yeah. So, can you tell us a little bit about how that's going and um, the Kickstarter and where you are in that process? Sure, we can do that. As we record this, we've got less than a week left. Uh, Friday around noon is when it will all come to a close, but uh, we've met our goal. In fact, we met our goal within the first eight hours, so that was really exciting. It was cool to see people are that ensu- that enthusiastic about, about such an absurd premise. <laughs> so it's, like Maybe it's, it's the uh, sea shanties that have gotten really big during quarantine. That's, <laughs> right. Be, yeah. That's right. Oh, and Matt, can you quickly remind us of the premise of Moby Dick back yeah. in the Absolutely, yeah. Um, the, the story itself is the story of Moby Dick, the white whale, back in modern times, now as a zombified beast, causing chaos and devastation wherever he goes. And it just so happens the unfortunate place that he goes is a beachfront community called uh, White Sands Beach. It's basically Jaws meets Pirates of the Caribbean because uh, while this, when this starts, then all of a sudden you got to have Captain Ahab. So Captain Ahab and his crew show up in their ghost ship and they're all a bunch of undead zombies themselves. They've been cursed to hunt down the whale because they were so obsessed with hunting it in life. And the only way they'll ever know peace is if they can finally kill this whale and uh, bring some measure of safety to the world. Someday someone's putting this in the universe now. Someday someone's going to like option this. (laughs) I think, you know, Disney you know, the Asylum like, does follow me on Twitter, so... There you go. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I think instead of rebooting the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, we should just do this. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. It's got good. all the same elements that people love from that anyway. 
It's true. I, I like to think so. We get, we got a lot of good things. It does what uh, one of my favorite movies. This is not one I've seen recently, but when we talk about like horror movies that we like, one of my favorites was this movie called Bubba Hotep. Yeah. We might have mentioned this in a previous episode. I don't remember. But it's such an absurd concept about Elvis still being alive in a rest home. And he ends up defending everybody there, along with Ozzie Davis, last film the, the guy ever did. Ozzie Davis, who's convinced he is really John F. Kennedy, <laughs> defend the rest home against an Egyptian mummy who wears cowboy boots and a hat. That's never explained either. He just wears cowboy boots and a hat. But it may yeah, because of course he does. It's Texas. Why wouldn't he? he but it, it's this absurd concept, and it's hysterical at points, but then there are also moments where you've got some real character stuff in there, and you almost shed a tear more than once over the course of this story. And that's that. I think that inspired the type of stories I wanted to tell, because I, I knew I was never going to be Spielberg, but I, I have like a few just weird little concepts in my head that maybe I can take those. They're really absurd and schlockfest stuff but take it and then work in some real kind of character stuff and uh, that maybe while you're reading it and having a good time you do feel a little bit along the way like to me that's the ultimate goal if somebody ever came to me and said just mad at me because i killed off a character and they told me they cried over them i'd, I'd be like okay awesome that's that's what i want like, there are characters i create just because i want to kill them oh yeah, yeah. absolutely absolutely <laughs> So this Kickstarter is to back the fourth issue. Yes. For Back from the Deep. Um, will there be a fifth issue? Will there be a sixth? Where there will be, there will be a fifth chapter, and the fifth chapter will be the final chapter. I, I have actually planned all this out in advance. Initially, I thought four issues was where I needed to end it, but as I was putting the story together, I realized I, I needed at least one more. So. Yeah, the fifth issue will be the epic conclusion of this story. Awesome. Nice. And I'm sure you've got something amazing in store for the ending. I hope so. Yeah, I've had it scripted for a long time. And um, yeah, I wanted the two, the two things that I wanted. I wanted it to have like a really big epic moment with, for, for the ending. Because with an iconic character like Moby Dick and Ahab, Ahab is larger than life. You've got to have a really good epic climax but at the same time uh horror stories the you know the worst thing they can do is uh, offer closure they never do that so it's still a little bit of lingering like a, you know is, is everything okay is it not or, you know. mm. so don't look for everything to be tied up with a neat bow I i'm not going to do that perfect interesting <laughs> that's the kind of endings we like in horror right yeah. yeah typically yeah outside of disney i never want that yeah <laughs> <laughs> So you've got Back from the Deep going on. You're also juggling a couple other projects, right? Uh, you've got um, Monster Hunter for Hire, which yep. has had its first issue is out. Mm -hmm. And yep. um, we're expecting more in that series as well, correct? Yes. Now, if, you know, uh, as a you have a full-time job and a family, you, you kind of have to... Uh when you juggle things, you tend to juggle very few <laughs> people that can really do this sort of thing full time. So at the moment, yeah, Moby Dick is getting most of my attention, but uh, I have not forgotten about Tommy, the, the monster hunter, who is a delightful character to talk about. <laughs> yeah. And 
are you prepping or thinking about what your Halloween is going to look like this year? Oh, oh of course. We start <laughs> is it going to be legendary after? My after wife and I start planning for Halloween on November 1st. Yeah. Yes. We, yeah, we sometimes we're already making plans before that year's Halloween, what we're going to do for the next year's <laughs> Halloween, because like, what were we thinking as we decorate? Oh, we should have built this. I guess we'll just do that next year. So, but uh, yeah, oh yeah, we're, we've got some big plans. My, my son has become a big fan of Siren Head. I don't know Ooh. how familiar you guys are with that one. It's, it's all over YouTube. It's, yeah. uh, there's, there's an interesting backstory to Siren Head. It, it's, uh, it's sort of like the American giant monster version of Slenderman. Mm-hmm. So like this uh, artist created it on his Instagram and it just sort of got traction and became viral and now it's everywhere. Um, my son discovered it on YouTube and he, he'll actually want to uh, go out into the woods and I've got like little siren head sound effects on my phone. So we'll drive through the woods at night and I'll start playing the sound effects for him. It's like, oh, he's out there. Where is he? Is he following us? Somebody somewhere is going to be like in the woods, like incidentally at the same time like horrified (laughs) well because of all this i'm thinking you know i probably better build some kind of a siren head prop to put out in our front lawn this year so yes so yeah that's that's the one i'm i i want to do i haven't sat down and figured out exactly how to do it so yeah it's in the works well you you've got plenty of time still true yes you know, to, to work that out. And I know you're always pretty good about like taking pictures of what you guys come up with. So make sure you, you know, please share. Yeah. That'll be really cool. <laughs> oh, don't worry. Yeah. Well, pictures, video. Well, well, when it comes to pimping out our home on Halloween, we're all about it. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Well, um, can fantastic stuff. Can you let our listeners know um, if they want to get in some more contributions to your Kickstarter before it closes, where can they find that? Additionally, where can they find more information about you and your work? Okay. Starting with the Kickstarter, just go, you know, just go into Kickstarter and look up Moby Dick back from the deep four. So this is the fourth issue that'll bring it up for you. And uh, yeah, we've got all kinds of goodies over there. So if, if you're if you've been doing this for a while, you know you can just get issue number four, digital or print. If you're new to it, we're offering you know each previous issue, just whatever you want. On top of that, we are offering add-on options. So if you decide, hey, I like this, I w- I'd be interested in uh, getting that Monster Hunter for Hire. I heard them talking about. You can you can add that onto it. Uh, my other book series I did, Jesus Christ Demon Slayer. You can get that one. That's a conversation starter. <laughs> and, uh, the various other books I've got, I've got a few books I did for young readers, Attack of the Zombie Source, Rex, uh, and uh, That Time I Saved the Universe. If any of that uh, catches your fancy, go ahead and add those on to it. And uh, yeah, and, uh, getting back to the, to the different types of tiers, like the, the big exciting one I like telling people is that uh, we offer you the chance to have yourself drawn into future pages since this is a, a webcomic first, even though we have all the pages for issue four. We still have pages to come and we can draw you into the comic. And unlike so many others where they're like, here's a cameo, our cameo for you, we're going to make you a zombified member of Ahab's crew. So <laughs> that's, we're able to offer a, a slightly unique version of this compared to, to what other Kickstarters do. So if that, if that sounds cool to you, check it out. And how could that not sound cool? No. I know, right? If you want to see yourself in a comic, why, why not see yourself as the zombified version of you? 
Yeah, and a sailor. And a sailor, right? <laughs> Deep shanties rain forever. Um, awesome stuff. I highly recommend folks uh, adding on um, the Monster Hunter for Hire if uh, you're going to donate to the Kickstarter. I've got a copy from the when you last did the Kickstarter for that. Uh, great stuff. Um, so definitely want to plug that for you. Actually, right before you hopped on, Matt, uh, we donated to the current Kickstarter under Splatter Chatter um, just as a thank you for all of your promotion that you do for us. Oh, well, thanks so much, guys. Liking I and retweeting. Yeah. And, we're and really to get that uh, extra extra Jesus Christ demon hunter, uh, demon slayer. Yeah. Just I always that always obviously I mean that's a you know it's a obviously your conversation starter but that definitely was the first thing that caught my eye as a horror buff and then also a um, religious studies certificate uh, person in college <laughs> so don't look for a, a whole lot of references. <laughs> Part of what appealed to me about telling that story was I actually had conversations with at least four separate ministers from different denominations just to get the take. And the common consensus was that there is no consensus. Mm -hmm. So I basically took that to say, okay, I'm not bound by anything. I can tell whatever kind of story I want with this. And so yeah. that's, that is exactly what I did. Yeah. Sounds like a green light to me. <laughs> that's how I took it so Matt thank you so much for joining us um, thank you for always being an avid supporter of us and our show um, sharing your time with us sharing your work with us before we let you go we do have one question for you so the focus of our episode tonight uh, is um, Jonathan Demme's 1991 masterpiece The Silence of the Lambs in honor of the Oscars this month, it's the only horror movie to have ever won Best Picture at the Oscars. We just wanted to know, if Hannibal Lecter was coming to your house for dinner, what would you serve him to make sure that he didn't munch on you? <laughs> Definitely a vegetarian platter. <laughs> <laughs> have you tried Impossible Burgers? <laughs> uh. I think that would work on him. I'd probably have to give some like extra rare steaks and uh, maybe I can talk him into believing that they come from down one of my neighbors or something. <laughs> <laughs> mm, try to pull the wool over his eyes. That'd Bold be, that, but yeah, that, that's a tough call because uh, I think the ultimate thing you have to do with Hannibal, if I remember is don't make him think that you're rude. Yeah. So just be as polite as you possibly can throughout the entire dinner conversation. Right. You gotta stay on his good side. <laughs> it would be pretty funny to serve him like vegan burgers though. Just to see what he did. Just to see. Like don't even acknowledge it, just there you go. I remember Anthony Hopkins doing an interview once where he said he'd only do the character again if he became a vegetarian. So Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's been a while back, so he might have changed his mind since then. Maybe, maybe. I think that's a good strategy overall, though. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell them, I've, got, I've got your fava beans. I've got the candy. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, an impossible burger. <laughs> good, right? <laughs> just imagine him just being like, what makes it impossible? <laughs> <laughs> tell me. He's just like, uh, uh. <laughs> maybe, maybe he'd be impressed with my, uh, my chutzpah. Yeah, that's true. 
He might just be charmed that you had the gall to even attempt something like that. Yeah. <laughs> or you might end up as the second course. Uh, yeah, he might still we... be charmed, but he might still, you know, eat you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what do you do? That's you know. the risk you take. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Good answer. <laughs> well, thank you, Matt, again, so much for coming on. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time. We are always happy to have you. You're always welcome to come back anytime you want, whether or not you're, you've got anything going on or anything you need to plug. Sure. Yeah. Happy to do it anytime. I, I always appreciate uh, when you guys invite me to be on. So thank you. Nice. Absolutely. Well, good luck with the rest of the Kickstarter. Stay safe. Take care and keep up the creep, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you too. Stay spooky. Thanks. All right. Well, I think we'd both like to offer our thanks once again to Matt Shore for mm -hmm. um, taking the time to come on. Um, great guy, great supporter of our show. We're a supporter of him. Always nice to talk to you, Matt. Don't forget to check out his work and support his Kickstarter, Kickstarter slash Moby Dick Back from the Deep Four. And give him just a nice little follow on Twitter. He posts a lot of fun. I mean, he posts a lot of con fun content, period. But definitely around Halloween, you're going to want to see the uh, the stuff he gets yeah. up to at his house. Yes. I mean, some really good stuff. You guys heard the siren head might be in the works for this year. Yes. That's cool. That's unique. Which, uh, you know, one day maybe we should, maybe this is a Halloween, no promises, listener, but maybe we have uh, Matt Shore on again to talk about the sort of spat of um, strange American cryptids that, that are out in the world. That could be a fun episode. Yeah, something to keep in your, your brains. Um, but yes, I like to think of, of him and his endeavors with his, um, his home as like the the good version of, I don't know if you saw that documentary on Netflix about people's haunted houses in their, their homes, yeah. which is a great documentary. I felt like oh, yeah, that, that movie's great. It's great. Um, the main guy, the guy with the family of like three daughters or something, I was like, all right, this guy <laughs> needs to, I, I don't know if he needs to speak with someone or like when he yeah, came out um, that his mom was a branch Davidian spoilers. Yeah. McKamey Manor. Yeah. That, 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 the one that's really messed up. Yeah. And yeah. But ultimately, though, um, it's a great documentary on Netflix about all these people who put together, put in like a year's worth of effort into haunted houses on their in their own backyards, basically. Um, I'm trying to remember what the hell it's called. It's um, called like American Haunting or something very generic like that. Yeah. Haunt. Not um, haunt, right? It's That's something a, like that, though. American Haunt or something like that. Um, but all I, all four, I think it's four people, um, three or four, are located kind of like just on the edge of, the, of like where Cape Cod begins in Massachusetts. Uh, and a couple of them have a rivalry of who can have the better haunted house. Um, it's a lot of fun. That's a complete sidebar. <laughs> but a good sidebar. Yeah. And... And kind of in relation. Haunters, the art of the scare. Haunters, the art of the scare, yes. Yeah. Um, that was also recommended. I had seen it separately, but it was recommended uh, to me by um, uh, Margie Kerr. Of, uh, oh, great Margie Kerr. Yeah. Um, she brought it up um, as 
we were talking about sort of like alternatives to people who are like too scared to do certain things. Mm. Um, and also as kind of the precursor to haunted houses, like the big haunted houses as we know them today, kind of like Eastern state and that sort of thing, um, starting in people's backyards. So, yeah, there you go. Like it was a total like trick or treat thing. Yeah. Matt sure. Keeping the, uh, the tradition alive. He's keeping the tradition alive. Mm-hmm. Um, which is fantastic stuff. Yeah. So, right now, though, <laughs> we're going to dive into um, the main segment of our, our episode, which, as we mentioned before, um, we are taking a look at the only horror film thus far to win the Academy Award for Best Picture in honor of the Oscars occurring this month. Obviously, they've been pushed back due to the strangeness of last year. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yes, if you if you were not keeping up and you were just like, did he just say the Oscars in April? Yes. <laughs> yep, this year the Oscars are on April 25th. Which and, turned uh, out to be a move for no reason because we still can't really do anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the ceremony is still um, going to be mostly virtual. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is that film? That we're talking about, it's, of course, Jonathan Demme's The Silence of the Lambs, starring Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. Ooh. So, (laughs) it's a film that everybody knows. Yeah. Pretty much. Even if you've never seen it. Famously misquoted. Of it. It's famously misquoted. It's a film that has cemented its place not only in um, film history and horror history, but in pop culture in general. It's a film that is a really tall order to talk about. And <laughs> I think these are our- the, the longest notes we've ever had for anything ever. <laughs> yeah. It was funny because Charlotte was like, because I was going over it and I was sitting next to her, I guess, um, while I was doing it and she was like, I didn't, she was like, Oh, I didn't realize you guys like did so much like prep for episodes. And I was like, first of all, we do. Second of all, this is like (laughs) extra. (laughs) First of all. Oh yeah. But of course, yes, this one, this, I would say for a regular episode, what, maybe four or five pages of notes. Yeah. This is, um, what is this? This is a 10 page. (laughs) This is 10. And so this is this is double. Yeah. Um, but the joy of podcasting is uh, you can take a break whenever you want, and you yeah. can pause us whenever you need to. And we encourage that. <laughs> we encourage that. So let's stop dilly dallying. Mm-hmm. Let's put on our big boy and girl FBI pants and get right <laughs> into it. So we like to, of course, start our discussions off very basic and very personal. When did we first see this film? If we can recall, um, mm-hmm. and what were our first impressions? Would you like to go first, Miss Mel? Yeah, because I've been thinking about this all day. Because I recall, so it's one of those things where I had seen so many pieces of it that I don't know when was the first time that I actually sat down and watched it in whole. But mm-hmm. my first memory of like the Silence of the Lambs was I must have been like seven or eight. Um, my sister had a copy of it on VHS that I don't know whether like she hid it from our parents so that they didn't know she had it or 
it was just a copy we had that she decided was hers because <laughs> it was in her room. And I remember I when I would sneak into her room because my sister is older. So, of course, I would sneak into her room. Um, I would like pull this out and be like transfixed by like the, the image of the, the moth on the cover with the skull yeah. on, um, you know, the skull imagery. And I would just stare at it and be like, huh. And then like, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, Silence of the Lambs. Like, that's a scary movie. And that, like, that, that's all I knew about it. And like for years, that would be like the thing where I would just sneak into my sister's room and look at the, the VHS cover, which ironically, it was one of the first um, best picture. I don't know if nominees are winners, but to be readily available on VHS um, at mm. the time of the ceremony. That is interesting. Yeah. So and yeah, and I, I had a note about that because um, the film was not released in typical Oscar season. Yeah, you know it was released in February of 1991, very early in the year. Most people save their Oscar contenders for November and December. Um, is is interesting that it uh, yeah. stayed in the public consciousness that but long. Yeah, it was the classic sleeve VHS, you know, yes. like not the not the plastic box kind, and um, yeah, just the imagery of the 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 moth on the mouth and stuff just really got me. And then at some point know. after that, I've I saw pieces of it and eventually saw the movie as a whole. But it's one of those things where I I could not tell you the first time I sat down and watched it. Totally. I'm exactly the same way. I, I can recall seeing snippets of it. Um, like, I don't know, catching it when it was on at like relatives houses or something, mm -hmm. you know, like you'd see like the interrogation scene or, um, uh, I feel like I always came in on the autopsy scene. Yes, it always seemed like the autopsy scene was on. It's and like Goblet like, of Fire is always just after the second task <laughs> when you catch it on TV. You catch it and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. And you're like, all right, well, I might as well watch. It's halfway through. Right, right. And because I remember for the longest time, I can't pinpoint when I saw the whole thing start to finish, but I remember for the longest time thinking that um, their first meeting Yes. Which, which, you know, which has the famous line and, and the and all of that. That happens within like the first 10 minutes of the film. Yes. And for the longest time, I thought that that was much later yeah. in the film. Because I was seeing it in bits and pieces and I wasn't sure of the order of things for such a long time. Mm -hmm. So when I guess I finally figured that out, I was just like, oh. This changes well, things. Well, what the fuck happens after this? <laughs> yeah, and kind of being like, what's going on now? And I think that um, just speaks to like the dynamic that is created so instantaneously yeah. in that first interaction. I have some interesting, and I checked to try and make sure I wasn't putting down doubles of what you had in the production notes, but I've got some, some notes about that initial scene. Yeah, I'm excited down. to talk about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's, you know, it's that one and The Shining are two things where I just caught so many pieces of it that I, you know, eventually was like, yeah, I've seen the whole movie now right. <laughs> out of order and across five year increments and stuff. Um, it's tough, right? With these movies, especially really big ones like that, that we grew up with to remember the true first time yeah. because in a sense there really isn't. Yeah, um, 
But I just, but I also think it's still interesting to ask the question because then we get to realize, you know what? We, we kind of just grew up with it. I just had silence of the lambs at like the back of my, you know, because it was like, it's literally, it's so visceral. Like it just, it takes me back even to like the house we were living in, just remembering that silence of the lambs cover. And I think she, I don't know whether she had it. Like the thing that makes me think that she bought it without my parents knowing was I feel like it was under the bed. But I can't remember if I just thought that because I would hide, like, under her bed and, like, look at things. I don't know. I was very, by the way, my sister is 10 years older than me. So I'm, like, 7 and she's 17. So obviously this is incredibly annoying to her. Sure. Um, but no, it just, it just takes me back to, like, that first house I remember living in, um, f- seeing the, the cover of, of that VHS I wonder if yeah. she still has it somewhere in her. Probably not, but maybe. Maybe. It would be cool to see now. Yeah. You know, if she still had it. Yeah. Fun stuff. Awesome. Um, well, let's move into some background information then, shall we? Yes, let's do it. Okay. So, Silence of the Lambs, of course, uh, is based off of the Thomas Harris novel of the same name. Uh, Harris uh, was a writer, and um, I, I believe he began his career as a journalist in the 1970s. Yes, I feel like I did read that. Yeah. I, I can't remember who he wrote for. So much information has come in and out of my head <laughs> <laughs> with this movie. But, uh, but anyway, um, he spent five years researching and writing the novel. Um, and... A large chunk of that was visiting Quantico and talking extensively with the behavioral science team there. Uh, It was published in 1988 as the sequel to Harris's 1981 novel, Red Dragon. Uh, That was his second novel overall. He had written a a thriller before that called Black Sunday. Um, Red Dragon, of course, introduced the world to the character of Hannibal Lecter and uh, was originally adapted into the 1986 film Manhunter, directed by Michael Mann and starring Brian Cox as Lecter and William Peterson as the FBI profiler, Will Graham. It was adapted a second time in 2002 as Red Dragon, this time directed by Brett Ratner, starring Edward Norton as Graham and Hopkins reprising his role as Lecter. I feel like I repressed in my brain that Ed Norton played Will Graham. (laughs) Yeah, I think most people did. (laughs) I feel like Ed Norton probably does too. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Will Graham is such a tough character to play because William Peterson is is very okay in that role as well. There's something of, I think Hugh Dancy is the only one that's done a good job. Yeah, as Graham. I was like, I was literally thinking, I was like, that's who comes to my brain when I think of it, which is so weird because it's like obviously he's the most recent person to play that role, and it's yeah. just like, well, he does it the best. So <laughs> that's all I can did. say about that. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that's kind of what it is, right? I mean, Brian Cox originated it, you mm-hmm. know, as we just said, in Manhunter, but Hopkins is always going to be who everyone thinks of. Yeah. And uh, Lecter is who everyone thinks of, I think, when they say Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately <laughs> for him. Very mar- my Oh, my gosh. My mother cannot separate Anthony Hopkins from Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> she just can't do it. Anytime she sees Anthony Hopkins, oh, he's so creepy. and he's like playing a dad at like a a party (laughs) yeah she's she got so mad at me um last december because we were watching 
Ron Howard's um, The Grinch, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Love it. Oh, and he's the narrator. And he's the, and I was like, Mom, do you know who the narrator <laughs> You know who the narrator is of this great <laughs> Christmas classic? And I was like, Anthony Hopkins. And she was like, oh, oh my God. I can see your mom doing that too, like on the couch in that living room, just having like a freak out. She was so bad. She's like, you just ruined the Grinch. Hilarious. Hilarious. Oh my gosh. But anyway. No. <laughs> so the novel, Silence of the Lambs, was a massive success. Um, it got a ton of praise from critics, from readers, as well as um, a bunch of fellow authors, including Roald Dahl. Uh, Could you imagine if they put that blurb on the back? <laughs> they were like, a great triumph, says Roald Dahl. Says Roald Dahl. And you're like, huh. the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory loves this? Likes this psychological thriller police procedural. Yeah. yeah. But then you think of something like James and the Giant Peach, and you're like, oh, yeah, I could see why yeah. he would like this. The witches? Mm, okay. <laughs> the witches? Yeah. <laughs> uh, John Dunning also uh, sung its praises, and so did David Foster Wallace. Uh, he actually included the book in his curriculum while he was teaching at Pomona College. Interesting. Yeah. Have you ever read the book? I have not. Okay. Neither have I. No. Okay. Um... I want to. It's on my list. I would also like to read Red Dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people say Red Dragon um, is a lot more disturbing than either of its film adaptations. Mm-hmm. But Silence of the Lambs is um, is sort of pretty beat for beat. And yeah. I think that's because Demi was so loyal to yeah. the book. No, I would be interested in reading them. My one hang-up is just like, how do I read this and not just like... You know, compare bring, or bring the movie with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. It would be hard. Um, As I understand it, there's not a ton of changes between them. Like you said, I believe he was very, very loyal to the source material, but um, it would be yeah. interesting. I think so. He um, he talked a little bit about in the the commentary um, on the Blu-ray that he wished he would have included more about um, Jane Gum's childhood, Mm -hmm. which I guess there are more scenes of that in the book. Um, And because um, the character was like abused a lot as a child. Yeah. And um, so I think in terms of the novel, there's maybe just like a little bit more of that kind of stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. But everything else well, is... Yeah, because I imagine you have the room to... Which, you know, we'll get into how insane it is that you can wrap these sort of three threads, as I like to, to think of them, together in this movie coherently without annoying or boring anyone. Um, so it's... I'm sure there's more of that in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So the novel, you know, it's... It's doing well. It wins the Bram Stoker Award as well as the Anthony Award for Best Novel of 1988. And it gets nominated for the World Fantasy Award as well. Um, But, you know, not everybody um, is sort of uh, riding the train. There are some critics um, and um, mostly like trans and um, LGBTQ activists who speak out against the novel. Um, and say that it has problematic and homophobic and transphobic elements. Um, 
i.e. the depiction of Buffalo Bill, and um, sort of speak out against the depiction of a trans identity being presented as a form of psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and this sort of uh, protest and critique was there for the novel, but it really picks up and um, manifests itself when the film comes out um, to the point that there was picketing mm-hmm. at theaters that were showing it. And we That's can talk interesting. a little bit um, cause I didn't realize that it was, it was picketed at the time of release. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, my understanding of, you know, and obviously like the trans elements have, I don't even want to say they have not aged well because like, you know, the whole thing is, and I have some notes on this later and we'll get into it. Um, yeah. but my understanding of it is, you know, I was like, oh, like I, I, I assumed people later went back on it and was like, oh, this is bad. But so it's interesting that as it was coming out, people were like, no, this is not a, a good or healthy or safe depiction of um, trans identity. Yeah, I agree. I thought that was interesting as well when I sort of discovered that because, um, and you're right, we can talk about this a, a lot more later, but just like I obviously grew up in a world in a space where I wasn't thinking of it as being mm-hmm. problematic. Yeah. So I just assumed that it wasn't at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and that's basically, yeah, and I think that's what happened with me was like, I was like, oh, right, that's not great. And then realized like, oh, there were probably people who knew that from the jump because that was their lived experience. Exactly. Um, totally. So, yeah. So, so nevertheless, and sort of despite this, um, it's this. It's the success and the praise that definitely wins out, and um, not necessarily undeservedly so. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the novel ends up being optioned for uh, adaptation to screen by Orion Pictures before it was even published. All right. <laughs> yeah, and um, you hear stories about that, but like not that often. That's no, you of- hear about them now a lot with like YA pieces, but to have that happen in the eighties, um, is pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so they, so they option it. Um, uh, the novel also gets later adapted into an off, off Broadway musical called silence. What? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I I could not find all that much about it. So if anyone out there has a, like some insight or some info, I'd love to hear we it. We got to ask Brittany what she knows yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. And so um, the, those are its two sort of major adaptations, um, one to screen and one to stage. Obviously, the screen one has taken yeah. the ball through the limelight. <laughs> Silence. Silence. But uh, Harris would eventually follow up The Silence of the Lambs with two more novels featuring his cannibal psychiatrist, and that was Hannibal uh, in 1999, adapted to film in 2001 by Ridley Scott, and Hannibal Rising in 2006, which was a prequel to the previous three novels adapted to film in 2007 by Peter Weber. Um, Harris... Uh, once Silence of the Lambs was optioned by Orion and heading into production, sort of washed his hands and backed off of everything, not because he was upset or he wasn't interested. Um, he just sort of was like, 
this is your version and vision of my story. I've done my thing. You do your thing. Like he wished them well. Mm -hmm. um, but it just wasn't a world that he felt he needed to be involved in. Um, Demi did invite him to see the movie when it was finished. Um, and at the time he declined because he thought if he saw the film and like how the actors were portraying his characters, he'd never be able to shake that mm -hmm. when he went back to write about them. Yeah. I don't know if he ever ended up seeing it, but he declined at the time. Okay. I, 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 I vibe with that. Yeah. Especially with like, once you see Anthony Hopkins playing this character, it's like, Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much it. So the silence of the lambs, of course, is um, the story of FBI trainee Clarice Starling, who uh, is assigned by the head of the behavioral science unit, Jack Crawford, to interview an imprisoned cannibalistic serial killer, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, in order to see if he can help provide a profile to help the FBI catch an active serial killer nicknamed by the media Buffalo Bill, who has been kidnapping, um, essentially torturing, murdering, and skinning women. So where does this come from, <laughs> basically, is where we're at now. Let's talk a little bit about real life inspirations for this story and specifically Buffalo Bill. All right. Um, Miss Mel, do you want to walk us into this world a little bit? Sure. So um, the term as we know it today, serial killer, um, only appears as far as we know in print for the first time in 1981 as mm. part of a New York Times article on a Atlanta-based killer, um, serial killer named Wayne Williams. By the end of the 80s, it will have appeared in the New York Times over 2,000 times since then. Wow. So yeah, that was like the first time they started using it in a- For Wayne Williams? Yeah, in a like- So that public, was the Atlanta child murders? Yes, in like a, a media public setting. That being said, that doesn't necessarily mean New York Times invented it because as we'll see a little bit the FBI kind of had their own terminology for this thing sure. um but basically um serial killer as defined by John Douglas as you have so uh researched here uh is a killer who kills multiple victims over a period of time with a cooling off period between which is important because this quote-unquote cooling off period um, before going about and doing it again um, separates them from what's known as a quote-unquote spree killer mm -hmm. who's somebody who just kind of does it and that's it uh, a serial killer comes back uh, because there's yeah. some sort of need um, that this act gives them that they're not getting essentially um, the driving force are, like also different from like a mass murderer yes right who is somebody that kills a bunch of people at once yeah yeah, this takes this takes place. It's a repeat behavior essentially. It's like a, a, a the most grotesque habit, I guess you could imagine. Yeah. Um, and you know, the driving force behind this is to, you know, manipulate, to dominate, essentially to have like control 
over people. Um, that's true for a lot of them. And there's different um, things that go into that. There's people who believe they're doing it because um, a deity is telling them to do it. They're doing it because they want to rid the world of certain people they don't like. Um, you know, neither of us are psychologists, so not going to go too much into it. But, you know, there's a lot that goes on with... Um, you know, people who were abused or bullied when they were young, people who come from certain backgrounds. Um, as you'll see in a second, a lot of them come from the U.S. <laughs> yeah. um, so prior to the understanding of this concept, um, legends of werewolves and vampires were believed now, we believe now that they were a stand-in as an explanation for like a rash of violent deaths that um, people couldn't explain. And this link is kind of referenced in the film when a police officer asks Clarice if Lecter's a vampire. Um, yeah. When she goes in to see him and she says, no, uh, they don't have a word for what he is or something mm. to that effect. Um, there was also a similar pattern seen in African, many African cultures and many Eastern cultures with their own supernatural entities basically as a way of explaining, you know, a gazillion sudden very violently killed sure. people. Um, one of the earliest serial killers in history that we know of is uh, Louis Pangli, who is the nephew of um, a Han Dynasty emperor in China, in what is present-day China, who would routinely go out um, on these expeditions to just hunt people down and kill them for sport. Wow. Um, people knew that this was happening for the most part, and the emperor knew... And they kind of just let it go on for a while before they were like, okay, well, we have to stop this. And he was <laughs> exiled. You, you got chill. <laughs> yeah. He was ultimately exiled by the emperor for his actions because the emperor could not bring himself uh, supposedly to, to kill his own nephew. Mm. Um, other earlier serial killers. I can never pronounce French names, so I'm going to try. I believe this is Guy de Ra, something yeah. to that effect, <laughs> um, who... Uh, is famous as being a companion confidant to Joan of Arc, but he is believed to have killed well over 100 children, potentially as many as 600. Wow. Um, one, probably a lot of people know, Transylvania noblewoman Elizabeth Bathory, killing over 600 women, supposedly bathing in their blood. <laughs> um, in India, a criminal known as Thug Burham um, is believed to have killed as many as 900 people. Jesus. Um, and then obviously Jack the Ripper, still unidentified murderer in the 19th century, killed at least five women. Um, so what I'm getting from this is that without mass media, people got away with a lot more. <laughs> Hell yeah, they did. Um, slash, <laughs> there's probably a lot more that we don't know that people today got away with. Um, but by the, by the 20th century, the vast majority of serial killers and serial killer events were happening in the United States they were largely white men um, between their like 30s and 50s. Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say every one of them is. That's just the general profile, um, which pops up a little bit in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, the 1970s was probably the most active period for known serial killers. Well, among the most active. It was the first time it sort of increased the way it did. Um, there was 450 active individuals throughout the decade. Oh my gosh. Yes. Now, this uptick is attributed to a lot of things. One of them is that there was just like this increase of research and awareness because about two years earlier, um, Howard Tetton, 
establishes the FBI's behavioral science unit that we see in the movie for the first time. Um, and they start profiling criminals. They start whole, you know, putting together data about physical attributes and life contexts and personal histories and behavioral patterns. Yeah. Um, and at the time... Check out the series Mindhunter on Netflix. Yes. If you want to know more about that. So they're starting to put all that together. Um, at the time, it's known only as murder without motive, quote unquote, is what they call it. Mm. At some point, it's believed they did begin using the term serial killer because NY Times did not invent that. Um, it's just not known really when they sort of switched into calling it that. Um, 1974 was among the bloodiest of the years in that decade with Ted Bunny, Dennis Rader, John Wayne Gacy, Carl Eugene Watts, and Paul John Knowles all committing crimes of murder during that year. So they were all active during that year, either just starting out or, you know, in the thick of it or what have you. Um, It's crazy when you think of all those big names, so to speak, of all operating at the same time. Yeah, completely independently of each other. I think I believe it gets nicknamed the the year of fear. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that they were able to get away with this. Well, not get away because we obviously caught them all, but um, people didn't know that this was going on until later because the combined yeah. sort of frenzy of the Vietnam War and the constant threat of like nuclear annihilation allowed them just to kind of go undetected because law enforcement, you know, this wasn't making news. Um, the way it would now. Um, So they basically went about their business. Um, There was another spike in the 80s before, um, well, after that, it's starting in the 90s, the sort of list of active serial killers or men they believe to be active serial killers dwindled each decade. And in the 2010s, there were only about like 70 active serial killers throughout the decade. So good for us. Yeah. (laughs) Especially like, I mean... It's funny to be like, oh, only 70. Yeah. Um, but thinking about 450 yeah. active serial killers to 70, like... Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's attributed to, you know, a lot of things. Obviously, the FBI got a lot smarter about this. The ability to sh- actually share information between law enforcement units. Um, Forensic science. Yeah. Like people, you know, it's very hard to do anything now and get away with it. Um, that's not a challenge, by the way. (laughs) Seriously. Um, so yeah. But, um, Buffalo Bill, who is our serial killer, one of our serial killers in this movie, kind of our main one, is, um, the composite of a couple different serial killers. Um, and if you want to explain some of them, I've got some stuff about Ed Gein, and Gary Heidnick is actually... The only reason he's interesting to me is because he is the last person in Pennsylvania to be put to death. Oh. Yeah. Since then, they have not performed any executions. And I can't remember. Is it... Is the death penalty still legal in Pennsylvania? It's just not utilized that Yes. It's still legal in Pennsylvania because I actually did some research on this for another project. Basically, in the 1970s, the Supreme Court outlawed the death penalty because they decided it was unconstitutional and then various states got pissed and started finding loopholes and then the Supreme Court decided to reinstate it. Um, And since then, there was only three people in Pennsylvania who received the death penalty. 
Um, and then after that, a sort of like stay was put. Like there are people who are still um, death row. tried and put on death row, but there's no executions performed. Yeah, which is a strange state to be in. But um, yes, it Gary, really Gary Heidnick was the last one, I believe, in 1998, somewhere around then. He is um, okay. executed. Okay, so he yeah he was a monster. Mm-hmm. He's he's also one of. Um, one of the real life people that um, go into Buffalo Bill, like you were mm-hmm. saying, Mr. Mel, he he is a composite uh, essentially of three uh, three serial killers. Um, we see in him aspects of Ted Bundy, um, particularly the use of a um, a fake cast on his arm mm-hmm. in order to draw in a good Samaritan. As we see Buffalo Bill uh, do that when he's pretending to fumble with the couch to get uh, Catherine to help him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ted Bundy would um, put his arm in a fake cast or in a fake uh, sling and use it to lure women to help him with carrying groceries or books or um, I think one time a sailboat when he was at the beach. What? (laughs) Yeah, something like that. And um, when they would go over to help him put whatever it was into his infamous uh, VW bug he would um, he would hit them with a tire iron and um, and abduct them um, that was a a modus operandi of his mm-hmm. um, the other real life uh, person that goes into Buffalo Bill is Gary Heidnick uh, we've mentioned he um, the elements taken from him he abducted women and kept them in a pit filled with water in his basement um, sometimes up to three women at a time where he would lower, um, an exposed wire into the pit and electrocute them. Um, once he was finished torturing them, he would kill them, uh, and grind their bodies up into, um, processed dog food Ooh. that he would, um, not only sell, but feed to the other victims. Ooh. Um, very twisted individual. And uh, the most famous uh, reference um, or real-life killer that people know went into Buffalo Bill because he also is the inspiration for a number of other horror characters was Ed Gein, um, a grave robber and murderer that skinned corpses in order to wear their faces and um, create body suits. Mm -hmm. And um, Ed Gein was also used as inspiration um, in regards to Psycho and uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, um, uh, well, Mel, you've got some, some good research about, uh, Ed Gein's relation to the film. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, so yes, as you said, um, Psycho, Texas Chainsaw both utilized him. Um, Ed Gein was kind of like a huge cultural shock when it happened. Um, you know, that's not to say he was the first serial killer or the first, you know, scary man to do anything in the United States, but it was just, you know, the, the sort of what they called the quote unquote, like house of horrors that he had where he had, you know, like there was skin for lamps. He supposedly had a belt of women's nipples and like, you know, all sorts of other strange things going on. Um, you know, and this was, I want to say like 1957, this is happening. So, you know, that's a big, you know, shock for, for people. Um, horror films prior to that were really focused on, like, 
nuclear holocaust sci-fi the fears of that stuff where like people put their faith in the government to um defeat like there's this this movie called them which is about just like giant ants um because people got really weirdly into like they were like okay like nuclear fallout causes mutations and bugs like there's just gonna be big mutant bugs like that was like Something. Everything is giant in the 50s. <laughs> yeah. They just latched onto that. So that's a lot of what horror is until Ed Gein happens. And then that, that just really shocks everybody because it's just so, you know, horrifying. And, you know, it's, you know, I don't want to use too many adjectives on it without, you know, this is a very nuanced situation. And Ed Gein did not have a happy life, which is not to say that, you know, anything he did was justified, but, you know. Look into it for yourselves. But it it shocked everyone. And it kind of inspired this new genre of horror monsters in film and in books and other media, which is like, you know, the serial killer, the human monster. You know, like our earliest horror films were very supernatural. You know, you had Dracula, you had the Castle of Otranto, you have Frankenstein, you have the Hammer Horrors. Um, yes. So Psycho comes out and it's kind of this new breed of... Um, of horror villain, of monster, which, by the way, is quickly followed by William Castle's homicidal, which is pronounced homicidal. <laughs> um, which have you ever seen that? I have not. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So he just is basically capitalizing on the psycho stuff, but um, in the absence of a plot twist, he's got a fun. He's like the king of gimmicks. Um, and his gimmick for that was that um, there would be an intermission where people could go to quote unquote coward's corner to ask for a refund if they found it too scary. Um, but then obviously Texas Chainsaw comes out. Um, we see the birth of the slasher kind of towards the end of the 70s and that sort of thing. Yeah. So. Definitely. Um, yeah. And so at this point, the serial killer is very much um, an, maybe not completely understood, mm-hmm. but like that terminology is becoming more widespread. The idea of um, <clears throat> a repeat offender of violent crime mm-hmm. is is becoming more widespread. It's not that people necessarily are comfortable with that, obviously, or want to accept that idea. Like that's really disturbing, mm-hmm. but because of all this activity and because of, you know, it sort of um, being incorporated into the genre throughout the sixties and seventies and seventies, um, this is, this is very much becoming a thing um, that we're seeing reflected in art as well as real life. Um, and there's a lot of interesting work that's being done, particularly by the FBI to understand these individuals and to figure out what drives them uh, you mentioned, you know, they were kind of originally referred to as murders without motive. Mm -hmm. And there's eventually this switch, right? Where it's like, there is a motive, whether or not that motive makes sense to you and me doesn't matter, but it it makes sense to the people committing these crimes. And if we can figure out what that is and we, and if we can figure out that pathology, we have a better chance of stopping them. Yeah. And a lot of that work is thanks to criminologist Robert Keppel, who um, talks with uh, Ted Bundy after he is caught and 
um, finally confesses to his crimes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because before he was executed, uh, he, um, because, you know, he was a major narcissist, yeah. sort of <laughs> starts talking about himself and his crimes and what drove him. And, um, he is used in, um, the investigation into, uh, the Green River killings in Washington. Um, and so in this situation, we kind of have this real life model, right. Of an mm-hmm. imprisoned serial killer being used as a tool by law enforcement to catch an active serial killer. Yeah. Um, but, um, Ted Bundy, I think was not as helpful as Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> the Green River killer remained active for a number of years after, uh, Ted Bundy's execution. Um, and he was not caught until I think you had it in the notes. Uh, 2001. 2001. Uh, yeah. yeah Gary so over 10 years, Bundy's dead at that point. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm not saying that Bundy wasn't helpful, like mm-hmm. in developing a profile. This is maybe for Ridgeway, but uh, it's interesting <laughs> that. Well, and what's interesting about that is like, okay, Ted Bundy fine um Hannibal Lecter <laughs> is at least a psychiatrist <laughs> <laughs> I know well and then I guess so it's kind of that thing right like um I don't know how familiar you are listeners mm-hmm. are with Ted Bundy or you know whatever like he is kind of one of the big ones and he he was really big last year there were like two yeah because everyone was like remember that Ted Bundy was hot yeah, because, like, and I was like, there is that, like, he was charming, and he yeah. was smart, and he was, you know, all of these things. And I'm like, is that why they went to him? You know, like, I wonder yeah. that. Like, no, and that's 100% why they went to him. My thing with that stuff was like, why are we making this the focus? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't care how hot you think Ted Bundy was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, that was like when, um, when Zac Efron played him. Yeah, but that was the thing, though, is that he was charming, he was very unassuming, yeah, You know, he got people to, which I think, you know, because the thing is, is like serial killers, as far as we know, in studies aren't any more intelligent than the rest of us. Their median IQ is around 89, even though we have this stereotype of serial killers being crazy intelligent and stuff. I think part of this comes from Ted Bundy, who's just very charismatic, who's aware of his own charisma and his own looks. Yeah. And probably even a little bit, you know, of us sort of having a feedback loop with Silence of the Lambs where we have this incredibly intelligent serial killer psychiatrist. Um, but, you know, they're pretty much just average people. Right. And it's great that you bring that up because um, FBI agent John Douglas, mm-hmm. who we've mentioned a couple of times now, who worked on the Green River case, worked on a number of um, serial killer cases and consulted on the film Mm -hmm. and was actually the inspiration for Jack Crawford. He, um, and the inspiration for Mindhunter and all kinds of things. He like notes in his book that, um, yeah, they're serial killers. Aren't more intelligent than, than anyone else. And they get caught. They screw up. And like, even the ones out there, he's like, they will get caught. They will get, they will screw up because they're not more intelligent 
a lot of the times they're just lucky. Yeah, look at the uh, Golden State Killer. Got him. Exactly. People thought the Golden State Killer was too clever to ever be captured, and now he's sitting in a jail cell. Yeah. Thanks, McNamara. <laughs> Rip. Yeah. So, so, so that's where we're coming from. That's uh, what's going on, right? You know, when Harris is writing this and when the film is being made and what's going into Buffalo Bill and even what's going into Lecter, mm-hmm. um, both, both of them as characters. Um, now, for the film itself, yeah. uh, we've got some interesting backstory because, because, of course, Manhunter, the adaptation of Red Dragon, was received really poorly and was a total box office bomb. Um, but because it had such an innocuous run, Hollywood was like, well, we can still work with Harris's characters and his world. We just have to do it a little bit differently because nobody went to see this movie, so nobody's going to know if we make <laughs> the next movie with the same character. Yeah, no, literally, like, I have never seen Manhunter. I knew that there was a movie out there that in which somebody else played Hannibal Lecter and that sort of thing, but yeah. could not tell you what it was called. Or <laughs> it's, it's not bad. Mm-hmm. It, it has gained a call following and some appreciation over the years. It's just, it's really different mm-hmm. than Silence of the Lambs and, and definitely Red Dragon and Hannibal and Hannibal Rising, which are a bit too dramatic for me. Yeah. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's Manhunter's just um it's just different. It's very grim. Yeah. Which is weird because it's not like Silence of the Lambs is a stroll through the park, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It, Interesting. It, it's not bad, but I Maybe I'll give that a watch and see how I Like is yeah. it grim in the way that Hannibal because I felt Hannibal was a very grim but <sighs> Hannibal was grim but engaging, like if that makes sense. Yeah. Manhunter is kind of grim and cold. Okay. It doesn't pull you in as much as Hannibal does. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, that, and then I think has to do a little bit with the performances. I mentioned yeah. before, William Peterson is a very like staid Will Graham. Yeah. And you don't feel super engaged with him. Mm-hmm. Um, anywho. Yeah. So basically they're like, well, we can still work with this and we can still play in this world. So, you know, that uh, Orion, as we said, we, it options the rights to the novel in 1987 before it was published. But they do have to talk to Dino De Laurentiis, uh, who had been the producer. What a name. <laughs> what a name. What a name. He had produced uh, Manhunter, and he owned the film rights to Hannibal Lecter. Um, and they needed to obviously use him for their film. And um, given how badly Manhunter did dealer rentist was just like yeah you can have the rights for free oh yeah (laughs) now dealer rentist eventually comes to regret this decision yeah because he does not profit obviously off of this because he gave away the rights for free for this film and it ends up creating this huge battle that's still going on to this day between mgm and the dino dealer rentist company over who has the rights to specific characters within this world. This is like a really like tangled version of like Disney versus Sony for the rights to various X-Men and Spider-Man um, yep. properties. 
it's exactly like that. It's like, it's, um, it's similar to the, everything that's been going on with Friday the 13th mm-hmm. and like Miramax and dimension and all the, it's, it's a lot of nonsense and they should just settle it and figure it out. This is what don't. entertainment lawyers are for. Yeah. Copyright yep. lawyers. So, but at the time he thought there was no interest. So he gives it away to Orion for free. In November of that year, Ted Talley, a screenwriter of the movie White Palace, is hired to write the screenplay. He knew Harris socially, um, and um, they had seen each other at a couple of functions on occasion. He had actually had an advanced copy of Silence of the Lambs. Uh, So he starts writing the screenplay shortly after Thanksgiving of 87. And he talks about um, his main approach for the for the film and the dynamic between Clarice and Lecter is that he wrote them as if he were writing lovers, mm-hmm. uh, even though that, even though he believes that the, the pool that they feel towards each other is not romantic mm-hmm. and it's not erotic. He still wanted to write them as if they were and that, you know, to hopefully get across that what they're really attracted to about each other, um, are their minds yeah. and their intellect. Yeah. So as he's writing, <laughs> this curveball comes into the picture in the form of acclaimed actor and director, Gene Hackman. <laughs> okay. He is very interested in directing and potentially starring in this film as either Crawford or Lecter to the point where he actually um, ponied up half of the bill to get the rights to adapt the, the, the novel. So Orion paid, I think it was $250,000, and then he paid another $250,000 to get the rights to adapt it. He was that passionate about it. Look at this. But then he sees a bit of the screenplay and he drops out. Not the whole thing, just a bit of it. <laughs> he dropped out because he's not, he's uncomfortable with the level of violence. In the- Did he read the book? Look at it. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what? You wanted this so badly. Did you not know what the story was? There is somebody else who tried to get to the rights to this. Um, that I'm going to bring up in a second when you get to that note. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So he's, so he's, yeah. Yeah. Well, I I guess I should say the story was, he was uncomfortable with the subject matter. He himself has never come out and said why, but um, uh, people in the industry have said that he was really burnt out um, because he had just done Mississippi burning, Mm -hmm. which is a, another really dark film involving um, horrific crimes and actions that um, human beings do to each other. Mm Mm-hmm. But because Hackman leaves, who's such a big name, the financing from the backers falls through. And um, the status of the film goes into a weird limbo space right now, especially since... Development hell. Yeah, (laughs) not much is happening right now. But co-founder of Orion, Mike Madovi, encourages Ted Talley to keep writing. He was only like halfway through the screenplay at this point. But Madovi's confident. He's like... Don't stop. I'm going to work this out for you. <laughs> um, 
So Tally keeps writing. Meanwhile, Orion goes and hunts down Jonathan Demi, who um, had recently become sort of a, a critical darling in Hollywood from for his uh, comedic dramedy type film Something Wild in 86 and Married to the Mob in 88. So they approach him and he commits to taking over the director's spot before he even sees the screenplay because he was a huge fan of the novel. Um, it's the, it was the only film in his entire career that he committed to before actually seeing the screenplay. Uh, he was that confident about it. Screenplay ends up getting finished in May of 89 um tally and demi meet over dinner they're like on the same page about pretty much everything they're like bam great good to go (laughs) like it was so fast these like things don't usually happen that fast in hollywood but um they click everything's great orion schedules to begin production on the film in february so at this point uh of course now you've got to start casting your film Jodie Foster. I'm going to hold on that. (laughs) And I haven't been able to say this in so long. One of my favorite lesbians. (laughs) (laughs) She is a huge fan of the novel as well. Mm -hmm. She wanted to play Clarice as soon as she finished reading the book. However, she also knew that she was Demi's second choice even though she had just won an Oscar for The Accused. Now, what's interesting about that is she's the second choice to play this role. She actually was in the running to buy the rights to this movie. Um, As many of you probably know, she is also a director. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to adapt this um, herself, and she got beat to it, I want to say, by, you know, Gene Hacking and and the like um so yeah it's funny that she was the second choice to play the role and had also almost bought the rights to adapt it herself to adapt it herself and i kind of like multiverse theory whatever string Mm -hmm. of the world is the world where Jodie Foster directed and starred in Silence of the Lambs is the world I want to visit. It's that, that meme of like the, the beautiful future where they're like tomorrow, if so-and-so had done the thing or like if something had happened. <laughs> if Jodie Foster had directed Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Um, how cool would that have been? Yeah. 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 So it's interesting. So she's, she's, you know, she's um, she's a big deal at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you win an Oscar, you, uh, you, you get to do whatever you want. Roles get offered to you. But Demi's first choice was Michelle Pfeiffer uh, because he had just worked with her on Married to the Mob. I love seeing, like, lists of, like, people people had wished or, like, oh, yeah, this was my first choice for this and just imagining that role with that person. <laughs> I know. And I was trying to, like... When I came across that, or like, I think they were talking about it on the, the one interview or the, or the commentary, maybe, I was trying to be like, Michelle Pfeiffer. Right. As Clarice Starling? Well, there's a couple other names in here that get tossed around that I see you wrote down where I'm like, <laughs> I know. And, and I think it's particularly hard with this movie because the two of them are so iconic. Yeah. That it's like, I don't, I, I don't know if I can. Michelle Pfeiffer? Properly... Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, 
But Pfeiffer got cold feet in regards to the subject matter, uh, which opened the door for Jodie Foster to meet with Demi and like campaign to him about why she felt she could do the role. And they went out to dinner and Foster sort of gave him her pitch. She talked a lot about um, like traditional heroic mythology mm -hmm. and how she viewed Clarice as very much um, exactly what a traditional uh, hero was in like the oldest kind of stories. And, but what made her interesting, of course, is that she's female. Yeah. Um, and that she was basically sort of the first of her kind in this particular role, at least in Foster's opinion. Mm -hmm. um, the pitch worked, obviously. She got the part. Um, she crushed the part. Uh, <laughs> to this day, Jodie Foster will describe Clarice as definitely the least flashy character she's ever played, but undoubtedly her favorite role that she's ever had um the role s still really means a lot to her that gray fbi sweater oh my god <laughs> the, the so peak cool. lesbian scene of the <laughs> 90s exactly and those sweatpants mm -hmm. oh it's so ugly it's a it's a it's a lookbook for for every lesbian in the 90s it is what's the family guy um Lesbian butts and 80s jeans. Yes. <laughs> yes. You could, just, you could just make that 90s sweatpants. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And, of course, now we couldn't have imagined anyone else playing the role at this point. But at the time, um, other actresses considered for Clarice, in addition to Michelle Pfeiffer, were Meg Ryan and Laura Dern. Okay. So, first of all... <laughs> I know. Hit me with it. So Meg Ryan, like what makes you think about Meg Ryan's filmography that this is something that, that would make sense for her? Exactly. Especially what she would have been doing in the late eighties. Right. Yeah. I don't because... like whatever. Maybe she was trying to make a break into like really like dramatic. I don't know, <laughs> but I don't have faith in, in, in how that would have looked. Laura Dern. This is the thing I was feeling. I, um, recently rewatched like blue velvet and stuff uh, which is even like really young laura dern but i feel like yeah. no matter what she does i just get a mom vibe <laughs> it's like oh it's my mom laura dern that's i know that's true i mean Maybe i love her but like, i just i'm just like oh yeah mom like disappointed mom, mom laura dern sure and i'm wondering if it's because like we grew up with jurassic park right jurassic and park yeah the mom vibes are so strong. Yeah. Yeah, because that was kind role. of one of her first, not first, but I guess her big, like, adult, quote-unquote, role. Like, yeah. not playing, you know, like, a, a teenage love interest or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's not that, like, I think Laura Dern makes slightly more sense to me. Yeah. I would be interested to see what Laura Dern circa 1992 looks like yeah. in this role, but I'm also quite content with my Jodie Foster situation exactly. I, the right decision was made foster knew she was perfect for the role and it was proved 10 times over yeah um now of course you we've got to talk about the other major casting that you you have to get right for this movie um and that's hannibal lecter now demi wanted hopkins pretty much from the get-go mm -hmm. um thought he would be a really um 
good fit. He could bring something to Lecter that not a lot of other actors could. He thought it would be an interesting foil based off of the, um, the doctor character that Hopkins played in the elephant man. But he was also considering Sean Connery and. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll see um, that SNL skit. (laughs) Yeah. The studio, Orion asked him to approach Connery first, because at this point, Connery is a huge star. Yeah. Um, in the late eighties, going into the early nineties, James Bond, you know, Hunt for Red October. I think that was before. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and Hopkins hadn't been doing as much in terms of Hollywood at this point. So they were like, ask Connery. Connery says, no. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. Yeah. And um, so uh, Demi pitches it to to Hopkins. Hopkins hears the title of the film from his agent, and he goes, is it a children's story? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Then Hopkins reads a couple pages. And he's like, oh, it is not. (laughs) He gets to the first scene between Clarice and Lecter. Which I think would only have to be like what the tenth page of the screenplay because it happens. So yeah, because it's in the first ten minutes. It's very quick. Yeah. So he gets to that and he goes, and he calls his agent back and he's like, "This is the best part I've ever read. I want it." Well, yeah. yeah. So he this is a children's it. story. Is <laughs> a children's story? <laughs> I, I imagine that in the voice of of Stewie, she'd be like, "Is it a children's story?" <laughs> The Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> a fairy tale. <laughs> so he's in. Um, but uh, other things to note, uh, other actors that were considered, um, again, the degree of seriousness, who knows, but uh, were Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, <sighs> Dustin Hoffman, Derek Jacoby, and Daniel Day-Lewis. Of course fucking Daniel Day-Lewis is on that Why wouldn't Daniel Day-Lewis be on that list? Like, he's just on the list of every, like, white male character, like, since the 80s. It's like, oh, yeah, we were also considering Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> oh, God, but could you imagine, like, since since Day-Lewis goes method? He would have killed... Just, he would have eaten somebody. He would have literally, like, eaten a person. He would have been like, find me somebody's thigh. <laughs> They'd be like... Um, Dan? Dan? We can't do that. He'd be like, put me in the strip jacket for 48 hours. <laughs> <laughs> you totally would. I like imagining these people in each of their like most stereotypical roles as Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, yeah. Like, like De Niro as Vito Corleone as yeah. Lecter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> as Lecter. Even and though then, Dustin Hoffman, I like to picture it as Dustin Hoffman as um, Ben Stiller's dad in Meet the oh Fockers as... Or or even better, Dustin Hoffman as Rain Man yeah, as Lecter. as Lecter. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis as Abraham Lincoln as Lecter. As Lecter, sure. Daniel Day-Lewis as My Left Foot as Lecter. Yeah. 
fascinating. Um, so interesting choices. <laughs> now, speaking of interesting, mm -hmm. Hopkins, you know, takes on the role. He had just finished, um, I can't, can't remember. He had just wrapped a movie in Utah when he accepts the role. And he had some time and he takes a, he takes a road trip by himself kind of into the, the Southwest to figure out the character and what he's going to do. Uh -oh. And he talks about, um, <laughs> he figured out that what he wanted is he wanted to base his performance on Hal 9000 from 2001, a space audience. Which is so creepy. Yes. The like, the, the like staple of like the creepy um, AI just of like, or like anyone really, I guess at that point, who's just like the calm, collected, totally in control, like murderer. Totally. And what he sees basically, yeah, he's like, I see so many similarities. Like these characters are both, they're brilliant. They're geniuses. It's, it's a mechanical mind. It's clinical. It's human-ish. Mm -hmm. but, but there's something there that's not right. Um, they're both really cruel and they detest messiness, which of course is a major um, character trait for Lecter because that's why he detests gum so much, right? Mm -hmm. He used gum as uncoordinated and messy. That's not what he likes. So that's, that's his big thing when he's thinking about his performance. He also draws on... Um, the cadences of Catherine Hepburn uh, and her work and Truman Capote. Catherine Hepburn as... <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Hepburn as, in On Golden Pond as Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> in um, My Fair Lady as Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> Singing. And he also draws on Truman Capote. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think for like, probably like his, that like sort of erudite, yeah, slightly fey, you know, kind of manner that Capote had. I think that's what he pulled from that. Yeah. And like, just the, the slow way he talks like Catherine Hepburn, like just the slow enunciation of words. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. That comes through. Um, so he figures all of that out. He gets to set. He talks about being a little scared to act opposite Jodie Foster, actually, because she was an Oscar winner. She had just won for the Acute. Can you imagine, like, by today's standards, being like, oh, yeah, this guy, Anthony Hopkins, who's kind of, you know, maybe a known person, is scared to act opposite me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, and Hopkins was a name. I mean, like, he, he was not. Joe Schmo, but like it, it is definitely funny to think of him being intimidated by her. He wasn't Sir Anthony Hopkins at the time. <laughs> no, he was not. He was not. And he was not an Oscar winner, but of course he would be very soon. Mm -hmm. So Jodie Foster, for her part, she spends a lot of time at Quantico. And she uh, has lots of conversations with John Douglas. She sits in on a number of actual behavioral science classes that he is teaching. There are really cute pictures of her in class. And when, when you go to class at Quantico, no matter if you're just a guest or not, you have to wear the uniform. So it's Jody. She was probably so fucking into that. Yeah. And they're really, really fun. Um, so she, she goes, she learns what it, what does it mean to be a profiler? What does it mean to be an FBI agent? How do you track a serial killer? Um, and, 
So like she learns a lot of things that like research is a huge part of their work. Um, and also learns that like going unaccompanied into a creepy storage locker without backup is not something that FBI agents are supposed to do. Yeah, I, I remember reading that the final sort of sequence was the biggest thing that the FBI consultants objected to of her going after Buffalo Bill on her own. And yeah. uh, Demi was just like, I can't change it. Like, this is the emotional climax of everything. And they were like, okay, fine. But that would never happen. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, um, Demi and Foster even weren't sure about that. Um, but like, there's there's an interview with them where they talk about like they went to dinner, and they kind of like basically like pushed themselves to a place where they were like, okay, Clarice as a character at this point, like she's been hunting this guy for so long, she needs to catch him. Yeah. Like they had they had to make it make sense. No, to them. and I totally buy it. I buy it. Yeah, it like, works. I don't, you know, there's a lot in this movie where I'm, like, also, like, I don't fucking know if that's true. I don't care. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. Um, but I love that they took the time and the work yeah. to to do, um, to to figure out what does it actually mean to if you were to be this yeah. person. Um, so Foster's time at Quantico and um, working so closely with Douglas gives her the idea to alter the film's opening. Yes. As it was originally written, the credit sequence was going to be an exercise at the at the academy that involved, um, uh, from my understanding, sort of like coming down on a terrorist cell. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the scene that's later in the movie. Yes, the training scene. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's like an actual exercise that the agents have to do. Um, but uh, Foster brought up the idea of. Um, maybe let's doing the training course montage instead. Mm-hmm. And that, that might be a better way for us to enter this world and to start understanding who Clarice is as a character. And I do think that was the right call. Yeah. And I also read that she found that opening training sequence idea as like being too derivative of, of like other works that had done a similar kind of gotcha opening. Mm. Um, I could see that. Yeah. yeah. Like they're pretending we think it's serious. Yeah. And then, and then it turns exercise. out to be an exercise or a joke or a dream or, you know, what have you. That's really interesting and makes complete sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so John Douglas, um, not only does he work with Foster, but he also talks with Scott Glenn, who plays Jack Crawford, and, of course, a little bit with Hopkins um, to, to give him some insight. What does it mean to be a serial killer? And um, I believe, what does it mean to be a cannibalistic serial killer? I think that's pretty rare, mm-hmm. but I think if anyone has dealt with that, John Douglas has. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, he also, of course, uh, Douglas talks a little bit with Demi. You know, Demi's in charge of everything. But Demi, interestingly, he's uninterested in going beyond sort of like the intro stuff mm-hmm. because he he found himself getting really uncomfortable with the grisly details of the real life cases. I was reading that about a lot of different people in the film who looked into real cases and like listened to real interviews and that sort of thing. Um, like got really disturbed by things that they were hearing and like really yeah. upset. I, I think Demi was definitely in that group by the sounds of it. It was kind of one of those things where he was like, if I'm going to make this film, I, I have to cut this off at some point. Mm-hmm. 
or I won't be able to. Yeah. Um, did you come across a story about Scott Glenn? And he, um, he was like, he was having one of his conversations with Douglas and, um, I guess something came up about, uh, they had disagreements about the death penalty mm-hmm. and Douglas played an audio tape for Glenn of, um, there were these two serial killers, um, that were a team, Bitteker and Norris, who mm-hmm. kidnapped, raped, and tortured teenage girls and recorded it. Mm-hmm. Um, they were known as the Toolbox Killers. And I yes, it's really really awful stuff. And he played um, a recording of um, one of the torture sessions for Glenn, and he like broke down and started crying. And I do. I this sounds familiar. Yeah, it's. So I think that they were exposed to some pretty rough stuff. Um, and But it also sounds like it was at their discretion if they wanted to. Stop. Yeah, like I th- as I understood it was the FBI basically gave them open case files and was like, look yeah. at what you want. Um, and a lot of them would like listen to recordings or listen to interviews or interrogations and would just be like disturbed completely by uh, things that they would hear. Yeah, I mean, I think about times where I've just, like, fallen into holes where I'm reading about serial killer stuff, and I have to stop. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's too much, and I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm going to sleep. I'm feeling really icky. Well, and to listen to it, that's another. Right, like, I couldn't imagine listening to, to it, you know, because it's one thing to read Wikipedia articles of people talking about Ed Gein having, like, lamps made of human skin, but it's like... Just allowing yourself to picture for a second, you know, what that looks like and, you know, where it comes from and how it came to be, right? Because I feel like we can very much detach ourselves with, like, this artifice of, like, oh, yeah, like a human skin lamp and, like, a belt made of women's nipples and stuff. And it was like, okay, but these were all attached to human beings at at one point. And, you know, you wouldn't be so cavalier if you were looking at that in person and that sort of thing, which is why I found it so interesting that they, you know, a lot of them were really having trouble doing this research, you know, this primary research, because I, you know, we're so desensitized to the concept of serial killers and different things that they do and they do to other human beings that it's like, you forget that like, oh yeah, if you were sitting in a room with Ted Bundy, you'd be pretty uncomfortable too. Yeah. That's like, (sighs) sometimes these, these, cliches get thrown around but it's just like that kind of evil right that kind of monstrosity it's really hard to imagine what that would be like if you're actually in the room with it yeah and like even having to like you know have a moment of empathy like what does it look like if you were to be that person who does that you know what does it take for a human being to do that um sure and that's where i like you you give a lot of to all actors and all actors in this film, definitely. But like, um, maybe for me, maybe a little bit of extra appreciation for Hopkins and, and Ted Levine mm-hmm. doing the work to put themselves in the minds of their characters. Yeah. That's not easy work. No, I mean, well, look at, I mean, you know, this is a rough example, but you know, and there was a lot of things going on around this that led to this, but Heath Ledger, 
I mean, the mindset that he put him in himself in for the Joker probably had, you know, a role in what eventually happened to him. Um, Yeah. It's really, you know, and that's why, again, like, you know, you have the public turning to, you know, these actual, you know, what we would say, quote unquote, real monsters um, in horror films where it's like, you know, it stops being the Phantom of the Opera and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. It starts being the nice motel owner and the guy who owns the house, you know, down the road in Ohio and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely correct. Um, so, yeah, so so this is a really interesting point. It's interesting. Uh, and like you said, Demi's not the only person who kind of has to pull back from this, right? Like, I think other members of the crew yeah. had to as well. Um but as I, as I touched on before, Demi mentions that he does wish, um, you know, if there was one thing he could change about the film, he wishes that he could have accentuated the theme of child abuse more. Mm-hmm. Um, because as, as detailed a bit more in the novel, from what I understand, it's child abuse that gives rise to James Gum, to Buffalo Bill. And not only to James Gum and Hannibal Lecter, but like to the James Gums and the Hannibal Lecters of the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, something that he said became very apparent to him in talking with Douglas. So many of these really violent offenders had awful childhoods um, that were riddled with abuse. Not all of them, but it's definitely a a factor. Yeah. And um, also, as I think we said before, it's not an excuse. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's something... Well, and I think that you saying that plays into, like, one of the larger themes of the film that we can talk about in a bit is just, like, Lecter's desire to be viewed as a human being. Yeah. As a person. Um, So Demi, uh, he, because he's such a fan of the novel, he intends to be extremely loyal to the book. Um, and because of its subject matter, he also intends to be extremely loyal to, uh, the real life profiling procedure and everything that he and his cast and crew are learning from John Douglas and from the FBI. And he says this made directing the film actually pretty easy because it was really clear what needed to be done pretty much every step of the way. If it was narratively, he would just be like, this is how it is in the book. This is how we're adapting it. Mm Mm-hmm. If it was procedurally, he's like, this is what the FBI has told us. This is how we're portraying it. (laughs) So boom. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So the film, uh, filming goes from November 15th of 1989 to March 1st of 1991, primarily in and around Pittsburgh, PA. (laughs) I have a fun note about that. I guess I'll just say now. Yeah. It's because of that. All the vehicles in the, in the movie have um, PA registration stickers in the window. I mean, it's one of those things. It's like, it's impossible to see unless you're looking for it, but like they got the plates and stuff, but all the cars have PA registration stickers in like the upper window. Oh, that's so, I've I've never come across that fact. No. So yes, obviously our longtime listeners know I'm from Pittsburgh Miss Mel lived there in college. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got connections. And it's it's still something Pittsburgh's really proud of to this yeah. day. Um, and uh, 
it's too much to go into now, but this was a result of uh, Mayor Sovi Maslov bringing in a lot of uh, film production to Pittsburgh in the 80s, um, which helped our economy at the time. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, primarily filmed in and around Pittsburgh. Uh, there were some things filmed in West Virginia um, and uh, and in Virginia as well. The Victorian home that we uh, see as the exterior of Buffalo Bill's house is in Periopolis, PA, and has been on and off the market for a number of times over the year. It was actually up again last year. All right. Uh, now's the time. Now's the time if you want it. It's just the, ex- I mean... I guess you, you could, I'm in Buffalo Bill's house, but like, yeah. <laughs> really? Anyway, um, of course, one of the biggest and most famous set pieces is uh, Soldiers and Sailors, mm-hmm. which is a memorial hall on um, the campus of the University of Pittsburgh, which is used as the Memphis, um, I've never been able to figure out if it's a train station or an airport. Yeah, they never quite... It looks like it's maybe part of the airport because the last place we see Lecter before we go here is the airport. Yeah. But it's some sort of facility in Memphis that they're keeping him at. I think, yeah. We think it's the airport. It stands in for the airport where Lecter is held before he escapes. And, um, of course, not only did the FBI consult... Um, on the film, they also granted, and this is very rare, access to the actual FBI Academy training grounds and facilities at Quantico. Um, and a number of actual agents acted in bit parts, including um, the agent that uh, gets Clarice in the beginning and says, Crawford's looking for you. Yeah, That's he shows up movie. again. I think he shows up a second time, too, when she's yeah, um, doing the punching scene. Yeah, he's a real FBI agent. Those, like, signs... That explains that... his line readings. Yeah. Because <laughs> I always yeah. thought, I was like, that guy's kind of weird. Or, like, when he says, like, he was, like, Sterling, he was, like, pack up or, like, whatever. I was like, is he mad at her? Like, I can't tell what's going on. Yeah, he's not an actor. He's an FBI agent. Yeah. <laughs> or was. at the time. I don't know who that guy is. Um, and, yeah, there's a couple of other real agents in the film. Like, those signs that she jogs past mm-hmm. about the arrows, those are, those are the real signs that are there. Um, so yeah, uh, in terms of actual set design though, obviously the basement was mm-hmm. a set, um, and the cells were a set. Uh, the basement was actually designed based off of, um, Gary Heideck's crimes, um, which we mentioned, you know, the, the well and, mm-hmm. and such or whatever. Um, this is also, uh, Demi says these were the most difficult and darkest scenes to film when they were in, in the basement, particularly the now famous, it puts the lotion on its skin. You know, what's uh, interesting is Ted Levine and Brooke Smith. Smith. Yeah. We're actually apparently like really close and really good friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and wasn't it that like, I think they knew each other beforehand. Yeah, they were like buds, and they were like, oh, great, we're doing this. Yeah. And um, Jodie Foster was like, what the fuck? <laughs> mm-hmm. She, like, found it odd that they were like, why are you guys... Like, she, she like, made some um, Stockholm joke, I think, or something about, like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and because... And, and Demi talks about, like, those days are really hard for him to go to those kind of dark places. And he was like, I was like dreading having to ask Brooke to go to such a really 
mm-hmm. dark place for this scene. And Brooke was like, no, I figured it out. I know what to do. <laughs> I understand the assignment. Yeah, she understood the assignment. And we'll, and we can, we'll talk about Brooke Smith's performance later, but um, really great. And, uh, but yeah, but it was interesting. I thought it was interesting that Demi struggled with that and he was worried about his actors, but his actors knew what they needed They're to like, do. They were like, no, it was fine. We rehearsed it last night. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so, um, of course, the other major thing about the basement is the final sequence, right? <sighs> yeah, which it was, it was famous at the time. It's famous still to this day. It still creeps a lot of people out, including myself. Um, and including Miss Mal, because you just shivered. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a disturbing sequence. It's very harrowing. It was shot over one workday. Now, that workday was 22 hours. Holy shit. They worked for 22 hours straight. It was Jodie Foster's last day on set. And, I mean, they, they talk about how exhausted they were mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, ecumenically. Ecumenically. <laughs> um, but I guess because whatever the schedule worked out, that's all the time they had. Demi's guiding principle going into that 22 hours was a lesson he learned from his mentor, the great Roger Corman. Well, imagine, like, I, and this happens so much with, like, filmmakers of this period where their, like, casual mentors were, like, Steven Spielberg. Yes! Like, <laughs> fucking legends yeah um it's like that doesn't happen to me I know. um if you want to hear more about roger corman and why he is a legend check out our episode on the mask of the red death mm-hmm. um also corman cameos in this film as the director of the fbi yes i believe that there's um i want to say six total directors who appear in this film as yeah, actors yeah because in it. George Romero's in it. Um, Anthony Hopkins is a director. Mm-hmm. Um, Jodie Foster is well, obviously a director. Um, Demi does a cameo as well. And yep. David Lynch appears as a voice. That's right. Mm-hmm. So six directors. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so something that uh, Corman had taught him, you know, back in the days when Demi was getting started uh, doing Hammer films was... Um, that the scariest shot you could ever have in cinema is the camera panning down the hallway towards a closed door. And that is why in the final basement sequence, there's a number of closed doors that Clarice must constantly open and clear Mm. as she hunts down Buffalo Bill. And I think every time your heart gets a, beats a little bit faster. And they set up for it so nicely earlier in the film in the training sequence when she yes. fails to clear in the training sequence the, the door. Yeah, and she fails the assignment. And here she aces it. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. And, um, of course, another uh, famous element of that sequence that... Um, gets talked about and written about is uh, um, the green light from the night vision. Um, Demi uh, intended that to be a mirror to the red light that shines on Clarice when she first ascends into the bowels of the mental asylum to visit Lecter. Um, And that sequence, there's a lot of uh, submarine sounds that are put into the film to evoke the sense of descending into like an unknown sort of primal darkness. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, in the film's conclusion, Clarice is literally plunged into darkness. And it's at this point that she has to rely on instinct um, that she has been honing since she first stepped into this world. And um, our last production note that we'll get to uh, is, uh, of course, the score, um, a very famous score uh, that was composed by Howard Shore. Love him. Uh, <laughs> Howard Shore, who um, got his start doing the scores for uh, horror films like The Brood and The Fly and Dead Ringers, and would go on to do other famous scores such as Philadelphia, which was also directed uh, by mm-hmm. Jonathan Demme and was his apology film for this film, which we will talk about later. Um, but of course, what Howard Shore is probably most famous as a composer for is... Um, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit trilogies. Some of the most iconic music in film history. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So he composed this for music. <laughs> sorry. Oh, don't, don't ever be sorry, <laughs> And Okay, so thinking about the score. Yeah. Don't you, okay. I would say Lord of the Rings opens with a really creepy melody. Yeah. Silence of the Lambs opens with a really creepy melody. Well, and I was thinking about that too in that opening scene of her running and like it's, you know, like a gray foggy day and everything about it just kind of feels like very mood yeah. and like off in some way. Mm. Yeah, like we, you almost expect something to happen to her on the course. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. So he, so he composes the score over the summer of 1990 uh, it's uh, it's edited by Susanna Perrick. Uh, his task, essentially, from Demi was to compose a score that stayed close to Clarice. Because the film was close to her perspective, right? Yes, there was actually a filming thing that they did where everyone who's talking to her, or most people who are talking to her, is filmed in, in such a way where they're looking down and onto the camera Whereas mm-hmm. when she's talking to somebody else, it's on her looking just off camera. Yes. So that we, we constantly feel like we're in her perspective. Mm-hmm. Which is a brilliant choice. Yeah. And apparently really difficult for the actors to film because they weren't allowed to like move. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Because, you know, all the conversations she has with people are very like, you know, they're not super close ups, but they're pretty, they're pretty close. Yeah. They're pretty close. And like, and, given that framing you can't fuck around <laughs> yeah yeah no right because you have to hold your head st- very still in, yeah in... or you'll screw up the shot yeah <laughs> um so yeah so yeah um and uh the soundtrack was released by mca records on february 5th of 1991 Ooh. so um at this point in the episode, we like to talk about the cast mm-hmm. and just go through um, a roll call. Uh, our latest thing is that we go through in billing order. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just sort of um, take this moment to talk about the performances of uh, each actor. And um, if we have something to say, we have something to say. If not, we can just do a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Okay. So, um, Top billing, of course, is Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling. Jodie Foster. <laughs> um, just because we're going to be talking about her so much, 
I'm just, for right now, all I'm just going to say is thumbs up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then we have Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Yep. Thumbs up. Uh, Scott Glenn as Jack Crawford. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Thumbs up. Not, I don't, you know, it's a procedural role. Yeah. Scott Glenn was apparently a Marine before he was an actor. All right. And I you know, feel like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I see that. You know who he actually, I was trying to think upon rewatching this. I was like, who is he reminding me of? Uh, Miguel Ferrer. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of the same vibe. They do share a lot of the same energy, especially when you have um, Ferrer in like those kind of procedural Yeah, the roles. same sort of FBI procedural. Yeah. 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 It was a similar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when he's, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was when he's a... uh, Rosenthal. Yes. It was a, it was the same unit, like similar vibe. Yeah, definitely. Um, I like Scott Glenn in this role because he's like, he's that fatherly thing, but he's also communicating something where you're like, if they were slightly closer in age, it would be romantic. Yeah. Yeah, he comes off as a little creepy. Yeah, just a little bit creepy. Not... Which, you know, Lecter primes us for as well. True. That's also a good point. Yeah. So it's those three at the top of the billing. Then we get the title card. Uh, The next is Ted Levine as uh, Jane Buffalo Bill Gum. I mean. Yeah. What a. Imagine. (laughs) Then Anthony Heald as Dr. Frederick Chilton. He's such a, like, he's good because he's, like, that character is such a, like, weasel. Yes. It's, he's so theatrical. Yes. Yeah, he's very, like, his his facial expressions are big. His, like, mouth movements. When he, like, struts in the airport and he's got his fur coat. Yeah. Like, that's a nice touch. Um, uh, Then we get four triple billings after that. And the first one is Brooke Smith, uh, Catherine as Catherine Martin, Diane Baker as Senator Ruth Martin, and Casey Lemons as Ardelia Mapp. Um, Ardelia is, like, barely a character, but Cassie Ardelia Lemons is barely a character. does good. <laughs> yeah, I give all three of them a, a thumbs up. Yeah. Um, Diane Baker, like, she does a good job. She's, like, that sort of, like, regal thing for the senator. Um, Brooke Smith, I... I guess it's partially the writing and obviously her delivery of the writing... But I love that in the basement sequence, she's not like a grateful rescuee. Yeah, she like, I, I love the bit where, um, you know, Clarice is like, all right, I have to leave for a second to go do something. And she's like, oh, don't leave me, you fucking bitch. You fucking bitch. And she just keeps screaming at her and Clarice is like, <laughs> I shot that dog. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, then we get... Uh, Charles Napier, long-standing character actor as Lieutenant Boyle, uh-huh. um, Tracy Walter as Lamar, and Roger Corman as uh, FBI Director Hayden Burke. All good. I would say all good there. Yeah. Um, then we have Ron Vodder as Paul Krenler, who is the Deputy Attorney General from the Justice Department. Um, good. The character doesn't do a ton. Yeah. But good. Uh, Danny Durst as Sergeant Tate who is the cop that's murdered in the elevator. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, Frankie Faison as Barney. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll just take this moment. What I like about Barney is that he, Clarice becomes this eventually, but Barney is the only character that fused Lecter with some humanity. Yeah. You know, he's kind. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the, the credits finish with Paul Laser as Pilcher, who is um, the bug scientist. Dan oh, Butler yeah. as <laughs> That guy's fucking weird. I know. Dan Butler as Rodin. He's like the other bug guy that flirts with Clarice. And um, Chris Isaac, who would go on to have an insane career as the SWAT commander. Interesting. And I think all good. And then people that not credited, just to give them their due. Alex Coleman as Sergeant Jim Penry. He is the guard that um, has his face get stolen by Lecter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harry Northup as Mr. Bimmel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frederica's father that Clarice talks to when she's zeroing in on Buffalo Bill. Brent Hinckley as Officer Murray, the young cop in the Memphis sequence. Cynthia Ediger as Officer Jacobs as the, um, the cop that's suspicious of Clarice when she checks Clarice in. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. And then sus Kenneth, Memphis cop. <laughs> I, call, I called her the sus Memphis cop. Well, I originally had, I think I had put her down as like female Memphis cop. And I was like, that's misogynist. <laughs> <laughs> and then Kenneth uh, Oot, who is one of the producers, he cameos as Dr. Aiken, who is the country doctor in the autopsy scene. Now, one of these cops and soldiers and sailors was formerly a pit um, professor, I believe, really? of acting of some sort in the theater department. I remember looking it up when I was going there um, and people talking about it. But yes, there is a guy, I don't know if he's still in the theater department, but he was in the theater department at Pitt, and I don't know which one it was, but... Um, he played one of the cops in Soldiers and Sailors. Huh. Yeah. So I have to do some like digging that. to figure out who that was. But The Soldiers and Sailors sequence is so interesting because it's sort of like a mini movie within the movie, right? No, I always think that every time because it was like, this sequence takes so much longer than you expect. You're spending so much time away from Clarice and the main... Yeah, it's almost like 10 minutes. Like, in any other situation, you would cut this. Like, it would be... Or you would, you know, you would shave it down. Like, it's it's surprising that they let it go on for as long as it did and you're engaged <laughs> for as long yeah. as you are. Yeah. But it speaks to, it speaks to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, that, so that's our cast. Um... And uh, where are we now? I just lost my place. <laughs> uh, fun production notes. Oh, yeah. Do you want to take us through some of those now? Just some, sure. some fun I'm facts just, about the film? Yeah, I've got some, some additions on here, too. So, um, yeah, definitely. As we mentioned, that chorus was a real chorus in Quantico. Uh, those signs are real. And the man that gets Clarice, if you think he's a bad actor, it's because he's a real FBI agent. <laughs> <laughs> um, the crime scene photos... Um, that appear in the film were staged by actors, but based off of real crime scene photos um, that were shared with the crew by the FBI. So that's horrifying. Um, That sound that Lecter makes, which apparently annoyed the fuck out of Demi. Like it was a, it was a complete improvisation by, by 
uh, Hopkins and Demi was like, what the fuck? Like he did not like it or was at least annoyed by it, but it was based off of Bella Lugosi's um, uh, portrayal of Dracula when Harker cuts himself and, you know, the blood is dripping down or whatever. And he like, <laughs> you know, has yeah. that, that reaction, which again, <laughs> you know, going back to the vampire um, connection between serial killers and, you know, supernatural entities. Yeah. And I, I, I just love that Hopkins, like, th- that that made sense to him as a choice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He made a few choices that we'll go into here. Um, the head in the jar of Benjamin <laughs> Rapspell that um, Clarice finds in the storage unit is the head of producer Ed Saxon. Not his real head. It is, <laughs> it is a prop head. Um, they were just like, well, we're going to go method. Yeah. Um, so that's who that is. The, um, uh, like, cocoon, the papai, papai, or I don't know how they say it. I don't know what the, I've never known how to properly pronounce that word. Yeah, but the cocoon thing that they pull out of um, the, the, the woman that they find, the body, um, who's a recent victim of Buffalo Bill, um, was made out of um, like chocolate, and I believe Tootsie Rolls were also involved in the situation. Wow. Um, so they would like it was designed so that they dissolved it in the actress's mouth, and it you know as it's sitting in the mouth, it wouldn't taste horrible. Like you know, like the stuff you know people have stories about, like how like fake blood and stuff tastes like you know like plastic or something like that. Um, yeah. But um, she would also not have to breathe for a period because of it, Um, you know, which also, interestingly, in that scene, you know, like, you can see instances where um, the quote-unquote body, like, reacts or blinks (laughs) to sounds and things that happen in the room. Um, But yeah, that's, that's always fun seeing what different things are made out of. Like in Game of Thrones, the horse heart was made out of like gummy bear material. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was surprised. I was like, oh, chocolate. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's an interview with Foster and Demi where they're like, the, the actress who, I think her name is Chris McGinn, who played the victim. She was like an actress, actress. Yeah. Like. Um, but she wanted something that would like really challenge her and they were Dead talking body. about like, <laughs> how cold it was and like how she wasn't she, like she wasn't able to shiver and like you know because she couldn't move or like if she yeah. like if they caught the breathing they'd have to redo the take and like Jodie Foster is just like that poor girl she's like she is the unsung hero of the sound <laughs> um so Lecter when he's meant to be moved from the the facility we first see him in and then he's getting moved to the like we're not sure what to call it the memphis station for lack of a better term because he cuts a deal with um the senator they wanted to dress him in sort of like inmates gear like putting him in like bright orange and hopkins suggested keeping him in all white um to evoke hopkins own personal dis like fear of dentists (laughs) essentially which i respect yeah no that's fine um 
So they filmed the cutaway flashback scenes of Clarice's story about the lambs, um, where like Clarice would turn and see Lecter at the end, but it paled in comparison to like just the way her telling um, Lecter about what happened, like how it how it played and how it felt. Um, an interesting thing I'll say here that I have as a note later, but it's pretty funny. In that scene where she's talking to Lecter when he's in the cage and, you know, she finally is talking about the lambs and everything that happened there. During that scene, a sort of like clang can be heard in the background in the middle of her, her story um, because a crew member dropped a wrench. Really? Yeah, somewhere off screen. And like Demi was like, oh, fuck. But like Foster didn't break character. Hopkins didn't break character. They finished the scene. And as soon as he yelled, you know, he was like, okay, cut the scene. We got it. That's great. Um, Jodie Foster like whirled around and was like, what the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so listen for that next time you watch it. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally, yeah, I'm totally going to have to listen for that. Yeah. Ah. Um, also, I mean, in... so I'm so glad they didn't do the flashback. Yeah. No, Just this was the... this was one of the rare instances where tell is working better than show. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought that was a funny tidbit about that scene. Um, George Romero cameos also in that scene as the um, walkie-talkie cop who is trying to escort Clarice out after they like catch her in there. You can kind of see him like turn and look, you know. Yeah. Back. Um, screenwriter Ted Talley cameos in the scene with the SWAT guys. Mm -hmm. Um, at the before the sort of like release, they held a special screening for the FBI as a thank you. Um, That's so nice. To show them, hey, thanks. Look what you you made us, uh, or look what you know we we put together with you. Um, some other fun tidbits. Um, Clarice's degrees are not possible <laughs> that they mention her having uva does not have a criminology nor do they have magnum cum laude for psychology majors apparently oh, no. two things that it said that she had <laughs> that are just not things Whoops. so there's that <laughs> um in the opening scene for hopkins where we first meet him when the camera sort of pans to see him for the first time and it crosses mm. his eye line hopkins made the decision to look into the camera um, and to look into the camera repeatedly in different scenes because he wanted to evoke the idea that um, Lecter knew everything or was in control of everything. Which I think great decision because it is so unnerving. Yeah. When she's walking down there and we're following this, you know, there's the other three prisoners that are down there and sort of this like max of the max holding area and we get to him and he's he's standing there and he's already looking at her. Yeah. Cuz she he knows she's there and we yeah. see like that's so unnerving. Yeah. Also in that scene, um Lecter's like quip about Clarice's accent was improvised. Um Hopkins making fun of um or make you know pointing out um Foster's accent and like the genuine discomfort on her face is real cuz that was Yeah a line he threw in and apparently after they finished filming the scene, she like thanked him for having, you know, for doing that and giving her such an honest, like thing to, to play with in the scene. Yeah. Um, the scene where Clarice, after she first meets Lecter and, um, what's his name? 
Megs, Migs. Megs, yeah. Um, you know, like fucks around with her and like throws like semen at her and stuff. Um, and she goes to cry at her car. That was a decision she made after speaking with a female FBI consultant who was talking about like how difficult things could be. Um, mm-hmm. She just kind of wanted a scene of Clarice like breaking down. In the autopsy scene, there are at least eight procedural errors. Oh no! <laughs> that happen. I don't know all of them. One of them is like the talk about fingerprinting. Like they could not have fingerprinted a body in this state. Um, stuff being under the nails. There was something about that that was wrong. And like the stuff that they put under their nose, there was um, some autopsy person who was like, I don't know what the fuck that is. Like, you don't do that. And they were like, no amount of anything you put under your nose is going to stop like the smell of like a dead body. Interesting. Um, So there's that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So yeah, those are some fun, some fun things. I did always think that the sort of cream they did was interesting mm-hmm. because you don't see it in like any other like procedural. Yeah, it's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh, interesting. <clears throat> but I never sort of thought like, well, why doesn't it come up in like Criminal Minds? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's, you never see it. Because it's, it's not real. <laughs> it's not real. Um, but it's a nice touch. Yeah. Cool. Cool. No, so this is normally the part uh, of an episode where we'll walk through the plot of a film. Um, We don't always do that. Uh, Sometimes we do. (sighs) Do we think that that's necessary? I think that here, if you've made it this far, almost two hours in, you know what Silence of the Lambs is and what it's about and what happens in it. Um, So I don't think we need to necessarily walk through it scene by scene. I don't think so either. I would say, let's go now to how the film was received, and then let's start analyzing it. Okay. Cool. So, Silence of the Lambs opens on February 14th of 1991. Valentine's Day! And grosses $14 million over the long President's Day weekend. It takes the number one spot at the box office and it holds that number one spot for five weeks. Hmm. It's a sleeper hit. And as it, as it, you know, uh, stays there week to week. And even as it slips, uh, it gradually gains widespread attention. The longer it's there in the end, it grosses, uh, $273 million against a budget of 19 million. Bank. Bank is an understatement. <laughs> uh, it currently has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 96%, mm-hmm. a Metacritic score of 85%, an IMDb rating of 8.6%, okay. and a Letterboxd rating of 4.3 out of a scale of 5. Okay. I thought, okay, yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that note, it formatted. <laughs> I was like, a 4 and three-fifths out of... <laughs> 4.3. Why am I doing this? It doesn't matter now. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Positive reviews at the time, and of course even now, acclaimed Foster, Hopkins, and Levine's performances. The taut, smart storytelling that trusted its audience. Which is true. There's not a lot of spoon-feeding in this story. No. 
um, and the blend of psychological menace and gross out horror elements, and of course how terrifying the film was without relying on any sort of cheap tricks. Uh, the great critic Roger Ebert very much enjoyed the film and he added it to his great movies list. In fact, he even labeled it as a horror masterpiece, a title that had he had previously bestowed upon only three other films, Nosferatu, Psycho, and Halloween. This is such a tangent. My thing with Nosferatu is like, it's yes, it's beautiful to look at. It's nice. Mm -hmm. It's basically like off-brand Dracula. Totally. totally. <laughs> because they couldn't get the rights to Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> so they were like, fuck you. Like, I appreciate it for the, you know, impressionist aspects of it for people who are really into, like, cinematography and that sort of thing. But otherwise, like, it's just fucking, like, literally off-brand Dracula. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yes, it is. But it did it first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next year is the 100th anniversary of Nosferatu. Yeah. I told you about how I saw it, um... With a live orchestra providing the yeah, night. oh, yeah, how it was meant to be seen. Yeah, the night before Halloween two years ago. Perfect. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, so yeah, so Nosferatu, Psycho, Halloween, and Silence of the Lambs. I don't know if he ever did designated anything a horror masterpiece after that. Um, but those four, that's pretty good company. Mm-hmm. Now, more critical reviews cited. Something we mentioned a little bit earlier, the problematic portrayal of Buffalo Bill with LGBTQ plus critics um, claiming that he was a damaging representation of bisexual and trans individuals. Demi did and acknowledged for many, many, many years afterwards the need for positive LGBTQ plus characters in films, while also pointing out that the film never states Gum's actual sexuality and that even Lecter states that Bill is not really trans. Mm-hmm. He says that Bill is not really transsexual because that was the, the verbiage at the time. Yeah. Um, and Demi clarifies that Buffalo Bill was not a gay character. He's tormented, he hates himself, and he wishes he were a woman because he believes that would have made him as far away from himself as he could possibly be. Yeah. Now, there's a lot to pick apart there. We'll get to it in the analysis. Mm-hmm. That's just what Demi said. And we can even talk about his response more. Mm-hmm. Just keep that in mind, listeners. There was also criticism leveled at the time at uh, Jodie Foster for participating in the film. um, Because given her alleged, at the time, status as a lesbian. (laughs) Your alleged status as a lesbian. Yeah. I I mean, (laughs) Jodie Foster's sexuality, you know, is, is one of those things people talk about, one of the worst kept secrets in Hollywood, right? She wasn't out until... I think 2007. Yeah, like she, I think it was when she got married or at least announced that she had been married to her wife. Yeah, something like that. Um, And everyone was like, yeah, we know. (laughs) Right. And exactly, because people in 1991 were like, well, she's a lesbian. She should know better than to participate in a film like this. Again, there's a lot to pick apart there. Uh, We're just covering the fact that it was a critique. Um, And some critiques that the character of Clarice was uh, overshadowed by Lecter and Buffalo Bill. Eh, I don't buy that. I feel yeah, she holds that, her own. That you would have to really make work for me. I don't. I feel she very much holds her own in the, the like, she's a very good scene partner for Anthony Hopkins. I think so too. I think the film is Clarice's story. I think this is a very feminist movie. I don't think 
I don't think she gets lost at all. I mean, mm-hmm. Clarice Starling is one of the most iconic characters in film history. I think she only gets lost if you're looking for like the genre elements and you're only focusing on on those aspects of the film. I would agree. Um, nevertheless, you know, sort of despite some of these critiques, the film is still a smashing success critically and financially. And of course, it's kind of the reason why we decided to choose it for this month is that it becomes the third film in cinematic history to win the big five Oscars at the Academy Awards. For those that don't know, the big five, best picture, best director, best actor, best actress, and best screenplay. In this case, screenplay. Um, the first film to do that was It Happened One Night. The second film to do that was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This was the third. No film has accomplished this feat since Silence of the Lambs. It is also the only horror film to have one best picture and is only one of six horror films to have been nominated in that category uh, with The Exorcist and Jaws coming before it and The Sixth Sense Black Swan and Get Out coming after it. I always find it really funny that in uh, Silence of the Lambs' Best Picture nominee class is also Beauty and the Beast. That's right. (laughs) They were competing against each other. Yeah. And Beauty and the Beast was the first animated feature to be nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. Which would have been a cool victory. Yeah, it's not going to happen, but... (laughs) No, and I do think as a film, Silence of the Lambs is better. Yeah. But Beauty and the Beast is still an amazing movie. Yeah. Anyway, in addition to winning the big five at the Oscars, it was also nominated for Best Sound and Best Editing. Uh, It lost Best Sound to Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Fair. Very fair. And it lost Best Editing to JFK. Sure. I can live with that. Um. Silence of the Lambs also won Best Film at the National Board of Review of Motion Pictures. Demi won best, the Silver Bear for Best Director at the Berlin International Film Festival. That's cute. Yeah. Bear. Um, Ted Talley won for Best Screenplay at the Edgar Awards. Um, the film won Best Horror Film at the Horror Hall of Fame. That year, it was presented by Vincent Price. Oh, my God. Pretty cool. Um, it received nine BAFTA nominations, Hopkins and Foster won for the acting categories, and it received five Golden Globe nominations, Foster won Best Actress. This is, uh, that had to be an interesting year for people who try and predict things, considering before the Oscars it wasn't winning much. No, I know. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. So, at this point, I think we'll step into the analysis of the film, which there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to get to. We might cover it all. We might not. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Is there anywhere you want to start, Miss Mel? Um, One thing that I found interesting. um, So there was this study done in 2006 that found second only to cowboys, psychiatrists were the most common sort of character archetype that appeared in film. Huh. Yeah. That 
that's shocking to me. Yeah, it was cowboys and then it was psychiatrists. Um, and basically, there this like UCL researcher um, went into it and basically put them into three categories, which was um, you either have a Dr. Dippy, who is like Jacoby in Twin Peaks. Um, yeah. A Dr. Wonderful, which in this they described as Sabrina Osborne um, in Transamerica, which came out in like the early 2000s. You have um, Dr. Dippy, who would be like Jacoby in Twin Peaks, like the really weird eccentric psychiatrist. You have sure. what they call the Dr. Wonderful, who's like, you know, the, the doctor who like helps you and knows everything and is basically like a spiritual guide who they describe as uh, the character of Sabrina Osborne in Transamerica. I've never seen it, but I'll take their word for it. And then sort of... You want to talk about problematic movies these days. Yeah. Transamerica. Yeah. Well, so this was in, I want to say 2006. Mm-hmm. Is this study. Um, I'm, and, I'm, not, I'm not knocking the study. Oh, no, no, I know. Um... And then the third is Dr. Evil, who is like Hannibal Lecter, amongst other characters. Um, and Dr. Cameron Ahmed, who is a psychiatrist and a filmmaker, uh, theorizes that psychiatrists scare us because they have the ability, or at least the perceived ability, to like know us against our will, essentially. Mm. And studies in medical students in 2014 found that... Um, even medical students who had to do, you know, because they each, they have to do um, time in each medical, you know, department of the hospital, basically. Um, so these medical students who would spend time with psychiatrists and doing psychiatry um, found them, quote, like, had sort of suspicion and mistrust for um, psychiatrists. And basically it's believed that, like, overall, this is the result of um, the inordinate inordinate amount of legal power psychiatrists have over patients. Um, like they can get them committed to places, you know, their diagnoses can be the difference between, you know, a guilty verdict and something else. Sure. Um, Even just something as simple as like controlling their medication. Yeah. Like they have abilities that few other professionals have outside of like the judicial system and that sort of thing. Combined with the fact that, um, you know, there are shifting definitions for various mental illnesses over the years. There are many things that are commonplace today that were considered mental illnesses before, which just has created a lack of trust overall in, like, the mental health services system. Um, and I think that's interesting because Dr. Lecter, I feel like, both is a product of, like, our longstanding mistrust of psychiatrists as well as feeding into it, um, you know, mm. as probably the most influential psychiatrist character in Western media. That's really interesting. Yeah. <sighs> and I mean, that plays totally into his thing where he was like telling Clarice, he was like, okay, I'll tell you about Buffalo Bill, but you have to tell me about you. And, yeah, he was like things you know that he would pick out at her, you know, like no understanding her something about her because of her accent or the way she spoke and like the shoes she was wearing and all that other stuff and these things that like in actuality psychiatrists you know don't your cheap have shoes and your, <laughs> your second rate shoes, second rate shoes in your cheap bag. Um, 
but psychiatrists don't have this, you know, magic window into us that we imagine them to. Sure. But it's, you know, it's almost this like relic of like, you know, like maybe even like the spiritualist movement of like the 19th century where we're just trusting these like sort of vaudeville type people to like hypnotize us and, you know, understand things about us. And then, you know, like Sigmund Freud shows up and tells us that, you know, the deepest repressed parts of our minds are what make us who we are today. Yeah. Cause there's a draw as well as a fear. Yeah. You know, and it's like, and I'm, I'm also thinking about like, um, in particular with Hannibal Lecter being so frightening, not only is he a psychiatrist, so he has a, a, a certain kind of training that allows him to have a, a kind of insight. Um, but he's like, he as a character is also um, exceptionally smart. Mm-hmm. And he as a character is somebody who, he murdered his patients. Yeah. So just like the fear... Not only that, like, uh, that your psychiatrist being able to, like, see you naked, mm-hmm. but just that, like, your psychiatrist has so much power over you. Yeah. You could be harmed. Yeah. Uh, in so many various ways. Yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. I, yeah, I mean, I've. I've been in therapy on and off for at least a decade now. I've seen psychiatrists as well. Um, and, and there is always a hesitation, I think, especially when you're finding a new therapist mm-hmm. or a new mental health professional and um, some anxiety about being so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's real. No, and there's definitely stuff where I've been, like, meeting with my therapist and being like, well, I don't want her to judge me or I don't want her to judge this person in my life that she knows about and that sort of thing. Yes. And having to remember, it's like, she won't or, she like, it's her job not to <laughs> and that sort yeah. of thing. It's interesting because, um, as Mr. Carter's knows, but my girlfriend's parents are both psychiatrists. And not only are they psychiatrists, they are... Um, psychiatrists who practice in psychoanalysis Ah. Um, so you know I'd be lying if I said that wasn't super intimidating you know the first time going to meet them um but yeah no I think it comes down to these people you know we perceive them as smarter than us you know they have credentials that we don't have they have some sort of you know sacred knowledge that we don't to be able to to, you know look at the way you hold a fork we imagine and they you know can look at that and say oh you were abused as a child (laughs) yeah all these other things which they can't do like nobody can really do that um that's not a thing but we imagine them to be able to do that just because you know their entire job is to talk to somebody and understand you know the their deep-seated um you know, for lack of a better term, issues or hangups and, you know, things that are going on in, in other people's brains and that sort of thing. And it's always, you know, it's interesting to me to look at, you know, like how we always view the psychiatrist as nefarious um, and if not nefarious, kind of kooky, um, yeah. you know, and that sort of thing. Yeah, just, just very much this, like, regardless of which of the three iterations, this sort of, like, not benevolent, mm-hmm. you know, or like not friendly, 
you know, like there's mm-hmm. something, there's always a, they're like kind of cold or hard. Yeah. There's always some, uh, wall in each iteration, whatever it is, which is probably like a really harmful notion because yeah. you're supposed to be vulnerable with your psychiatrist. No. And that was one of the studies I was reading was basically talking about how like we need to stop these, um, sort of popular stereotypes of psychiatrists because it's hurting psychiatry. It's hurting people who need mental health services and aren't getting it because of preconceived notions about um, psychiatrists and even psychologists and just general therapists. Yeah. Um, You know, and it comes down to, yes, vulnerability that, you know, somebody could, could look at you and basically, as you said, be seeing you naked um, in a, in a way. Um, And Dr. Lecter does not help. (laughs) No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Um, so yeah, so we have to do the work to remember that uh, he is fictional. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Doctor Lecter um, cannot get you. He can't get you, and uh, you just enjoy him as a character, and you don't you don't have to actually worry about encountering him when you <laughs> go to therapy. Um. Yeah. So yeah, there's that. I also it was interesting what you say about um, Clarice as a hero like the archetypical hero and I thought about it um watching her go into that scene where she goes to see Lecter for the first time which first of all I just want to point out her walk across like the sort of gallery of serial killers is the slowest anyone could walk through a hallway of serial killers it truly is she's just like oh yeah let me stop and take a look um but then also but don't you kind of but but then you're like but wouldn't I want to right? You'd want to take a take look. A look. Um, because like, no, that's not access that like you get on an everyday basis, right? Like to be no. On fun. the one hand, it's like yes, I get it. On the other hand, it's like I you need to keep walking. <laughs> um, right. But that well, whole it's, sequence it's interesting because when she leaves that scene, right? Mm-hmm. It's she, she flees. You know, it's a yeah. lot faster. Like everything that happens with Megs, and she's kind of unsettled with Lecter. Like yeah. She sort of, she doesn't run, but like, she's moving. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that whole sequence of like, kind of feeling like she's going down into the underworld. Um, And, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, the archetypical hero, if we're looking at it from like a, you know, a a Gilgameshi standpoint, it's always about like, um, you know, at the climax, it's the um, reckoning with the father. Yeah. Um, you know, in this case for Clarice, it's a lot of different fathers. It is her actual father and the stories about him that she relays to Dr. Lecter and overcoming what happened there. It is Dr. Lecter as a father figure and kind of taking, you know, the helm from him where he, you know, he constantly tells her, he is like, you have everything you need to catch him. You're, you know, you, you, you're very close to how you're going to catch him. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't tell her, he doesn't spell it out for her, but he gives her clues that she picks up on and she finally like, you know, goes about that. And then, you know, the father figure in Jack Crawford and like, kind of like going above and beyond him, um, in, you know, being the person who brings down Buffalo Bill. Um, Mm -hmm. I find that very interesting and I can see where she, she pulled that from. Yeah, absolutely. And even just like, um, 
a lot of classic tropes, right? Like, yeah, like confronting the father figure and certain trials and um, the idea of a mentor and um, that at the end of a classic hero's journey, there's a descent, mm-hmm. right? There's always a descent into darkness and then rising again into the light. I mean, like the basement, she's literally yeah. plunged into darkness in this dungeon, when she reacts on instinct and shoots him, there's that bullet that breaks the window and the light comes in. Mm-hmm. Like there's a there's a lot here that um symbolically situates Clarice as a as a hero in the classical sense. Um which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a, this, there's a lot of symbolism oh. in this film that isn't like the film itself, nothing is shoved in your face. No, but there's a lot. If you if you pick up on it, it adds it adds things and it can influence readings. Um, there's a detail that uh, I've noticed some people pick up uh, in, in the storage locker. Mm-hmm. When uh, the car that has Benjamin Raspiel's head in it is covered with an American flag, mm-hmm. and um, just this symbolic idea, you know what's inside the car is evidence of really unspeakable violence. Yeah. And so there's this correlation there um, that, that, that Demi intentionally put in, he wanted the audience to subconsciously pick up on it in that scene about America and violence, you know, cars, which has been so, or was so important to the American identity, all of that being tied in together symbolically. Inside the, uh, the literal uncanny valley of this uh, storage locker. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Which, of course, is like there's all of these like mannequins and stuff or whatever that are like mm-hmm. meant to evoke corpses and body trauma. Um, Clarice gets cut on the nail on her way in. There's mm-hmm. the like a there's that's a harbinger that like things are about to get bad for her. There's a lot of that throughout the film, um, which is. It's not necessary for the film to succeed, but if you pick up on it, it adds those great extra layers. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about like Clarice and Lecter's relationship, right? Yeah, it's so interesting because I feel like the movie does a smart thing where it acknowledges like the potential perception of a romantic thing, and basically, like by acknowledging it, shuts it down. Which yes. I'm sure fan fiction is out there, you know, and whatever. That's what fan fiction's for. But, like, you know, <laughs> the reading here is just, like, two people who, you know, have a understanding between each other and have, a, you know, whatever it is, a connection. Um, you know, and it's so interesting at the end when he gets away and the person he calls is Clarice to be basically be like, good job, kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then hangs up on her. And also that thing where he's where he's like, I'm don't worry, I'm not coming after you. Yeah. And I expect the same courtesy. Yeah. And of course, you know, she says, I you know, I can't promise you that. You know, where are you? And then of course the great I have to go. I'm having an old friend for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, there's I think What's great about them is it's it's not romantic because we go down that path and then we shut it down. Yeah. 
it's not erotic because we go down that path and we shut it down. It's, it's this mentor mentee kind of thing. It's this gradual thing for both of them where they come to mutually respect and understand each other in a way that nobody else ever has. Yeah. Like I, I think he gets from her what he most wants is, which is to be seen as a human being. Yeah. Like Lecter, because he's a psychopath or whatever, he's not, he doesn't want you to forgive him for what he's done. He doesn't want you to absolve him. He he doesn't care because he doesn't view that as wrong. Yeah. But he wants to be treated as a person. He wants access to, he wants to see sky. He wants to hear birds. He wants to be outside, you know. Which is such an interesting, you know, and the film doesn't comment on this, but it's like the larger issue of like, um, the issues of like the prison industrial complex and like, you know, even people who, you know, commit unspeakable evil, you know, as as we would define it, it's like, well, he's still a person who wants sunlight and right. the ability to, you know, hear birds chirping and that sort of thing. And, you know, who is in a position to say, no, you don't deserve that. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I also think it's interesting that as Clarice accepts him as human... She also, like, she doesn't, like, completely lose herself in him. No. You know what I mean? She she kind of pumps the brakes when she needs to, and she sets boundaries. She's like, we're not going to go beyond what we have right here, yeah. right now. Um, which is interesting. Yeah. I think the other major thing that we should definitely talk about um and and there's a couple other notes we haven't got to yet but just to make sure we give this some time Mm -hmm. is um buffalo bill yeah and the portrayal of a character who is interpreted as being trans yeah but the, the film does not commit to what gum's identity is so my first stance on this is just like you know if a trans person is offended by it okay like you know i'm not trans i can't comment on it and if that's how you you know view it and see it and that's your experience with it then valid yes like go for it talk about it you know whatever your situation is you know i don't feel i know enough to make a full comment on that stuff because I see, you know, I've read a couple of arguments and seen a couple different sides because the film, you know, as you said, does point out, they say like, you know, he's not, you know, like as far as Hannibal Lecter's concerned and as far as Clarice is concerned, um, gum is not transsexual or transgender as we would know it today. Um, like he doesn't fit that bill according to them he he thinks he is because he's got a lot of um other things going on um i could see on the one hand that being a reading as like okay like yes like um psychosis and transgender identity are two different things i could also see that as you know people saying well you know who are these two people to you know 
tell somebody they are not trans, you know, and right. that sort of thing. You know, it's very messy and nuanced. What's interesting is the same thing happened with Ed Gein. Um, people talked about him being, you know, at the time his terminology was transsexual or even transvestite. Um, right. And that was never something that the police or um, the investigators thought or, or knew about him. Um, it was just something that was inferred because of, you know, his behavior of wanting to, you know, wear these the, the flayed skin of these women as his own, which, you know, they theorized was had something to do with his relationship with his mother and, you know, possibly wanting to bring his mother back and that sort of thing, as opposed to wanting... Um, to be identified generally as a woman. Right. Um, but, you know, it's it, it ends up being what sticks, right? Um, so like Ed Gein, you know, people are always remembering the various bits of, of women's bodies that he kept and the fact that he, he wore women's bodies as his own and that's what sticks. And I think that's the thing with Buffalo Bill is Demi and you know, the film tried to make a point out of it. You know, they saw you know, the problematicness of it and just didn't, you know, they assumed that their explanation would be sufficient. Um, and I think for a yeah. lot of trans people, it's not. Yeah. I think, I think I'm with you on pretty much every step of the way there. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm not trans. It's not a lived experience I can speak to. I often find myself hesitant and even someone somewhat scared to talk about trans stuff just because, um, it, it's not my world and I mm -hmm. don't want to, I don't want to speak out of turn and, or speak out of place. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but, but yeah, I, I don't think anybody involved in the making of the film had bad intentions. Yeah. Um, I, I'm really interested in, in the fact that Demi when they were sort of confronted with the fact that people were protesting at the time, he really took that to heart. Yeah. And he didn't double down. I mean, he offered his explanation of the character, mm -hmm. but then he also sort of like did the work. Um, even at the Oscars that year, he handed out pamphlets to people, mm -hmm. pamphlets that had been written by trans activists um, to sort of like clear up misconceptions. And like, he did a lot of work in the years following um, to make sure that like permanent damage wasn't done to the trans community. Mm -hmm. But of course I also think the movie exists as the movie exists. Yeah. And if it's problematic and it's hurtful, it's problematic and it's hurtful. Yeah. It doesn't mean the movie should be canceled. Yeah or never watched or never studied. If, I think if anything, it means it should be looked at more mm -hmm. and talked about why um, people in the trans community have issue with it. Yeah. Um, I guess to me, it's, it's really, really gray, right? Yeah. No, it is. It's one of those things where it's like, I can see where it's like all sides to me are valid because I can see where everyone's coming from in the situation and what yeah. everyone's experience was. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, I think the re well, not, I think other people also think the reason that <clears throat> people latched on to 
Ed Gein's situation was because at that time, you know, homosexuality or gender non-conforming identities were flying in the face of like, you know, what America was using as its tools against communism, which was like, you know, the nuclear family and religion and that sort of thing. I think yeah. Buffalo Bill comes at a time when, you know, we have the 90s white male crisis of, you know, record numbers of women going to college and being in the workforce it's the first time they outnumber men in this way um and there's kind of like this crisis of masculinity that we see you know probably best encapsulated in fight Jack. club <laughs> yeah. um you know so i think that's you know that's probably kind of what those two things were like respectively tapping into yeah. <clears throat> um yeah. I, I definitely agree. I think it's really interesting to look at the films around this time yeah. and what they were doing and what they were talking about um, in this regard. Um, you think about uh, a year after Signs of the Lambs, Basic Instinct came mm -hmm. out, which got a ton of heat um, because of the Catherine Trammell character, you know, mm -hmm. like that uh, she was either bisexual or lesbian, we don't know. Um, and like a, a psychopath, you know, yeah. and, um, well, and that's the other thing about this movie and other films like it too, you know, there's also, you know, people who live every day with psychopathy and that sort of things, you know, too, who are maligned in cinema. Um, you know, these are people who don't go out and murder people, um, mm -hmm. on a daily basis and that sort of thing. Like they are somewhat functioning human beings and that sort of thing. Um, and right. that's not to say this film is at fault for any of, um, you know, the issues we have with mental health services and mental health awareness and all that other stuff. Like, you know, it is just one of many films that uses different mental health diagnoses as it's sort of like jumping off point. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, you know, every movie that's about, um, you know, some sort of mental health diagnosis needs to make a state, you know, some sort of disclaimer statement. Sure. Um, about mental health and, in, in it's, um, and, you know, I think in, the, in a way this one does where, you know, you do have Hannibal Lecter who, yeah, again, committing crazy atrocities, crazy, you know, if nothing else, like breaches of decorum and privacy and trust wow. for his, his patients. Um, but he's also a, a guy who's, you know, wants to be viewed as a human being. He, you know, he has no remorse. He does not think anything that he did was wrong by his standards, but he does not want to be treated like an animal. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a very extreme case, but you know, there are people who live every day with psychopathy and, sociopathy and these different things that we you know use in movies or in jokes and stuff you know and you know they're not going out murdering their and eating their patients but um they probably also want to be viewed as human beings and even the ones who are going out and murdering people and their patients you know at the end of the day are still human beings yeah, and maybe that's what's so tough, right? Mm -hmm. um, for 
for so many of us to view an individual that commits crimes like that as human, yeah, as 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 what we are as well, because yeah. what what people do is so dark, right? And it kind of it goes back to what you were talking about a little bit before, like um, th- this fascination that so many of us have with serial killers. Um, that they're diabolical, that they're more clever than other people, than other killers, that they're masterminds in the most sinister fashion, but they hide in plain sight. They put on the mask of sanity. That's yeah. what Lecter is. We, we think of them like supervillains, and they're not. <laughs> and that's Lecter. Yeah. He is larger than life. He's grotesquely charming. He's witty. He's clever. But he's not real. Yeah. You know, like, as Douglas said... These serial killers aren't aren't like him. Oh. They're I mean, it's not that they're not smart. No, they're just they're working class. A lot of them are blue collar, white men with, you know, high school degrees, maybe at this point, college, now that college is more commonplace, but they're not, you know, they're not psychiatrists, they're not doctors or professors or anything like that it's just average people superhuman yeah but yeah but that's that's something that's hard for us and i think that's why we make them into super villains and that's why we use terms like monster because um it's really hard to sit with the idea that someone just like you could do things that they do 100 percent um And I mean, you see that in a lot of things. I mean, most notably, you probably see it in the way that many of us view racism. You know, when we look at the idea of a racist, we picture some sort of Ku Klux Klan um, individual, and that's racism. Whereas, you know, there are everyday sort of transgressions that people will do and commit and think um, and not even realize it. Um, Yeah. And I think that's the hardest thing is is realizing like, yeah, yeah, these people are actually a lot like me. Yeah. It's really hard. And it's really uncomfortable. Um and in a way that's kind of what this film is getting at, despite the fact that Lecter and um Gum are two serial killers, are two major extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, we kind of walk away with this idea that, like, um, it's commonplace, this kind of evil and this kind of cruelty. And specifically in regards to the ending, mm-hmm. is that um, it's always out there. Yeah. Um, and that we, you, you strive and you take it down when you can. And that, that's good work that should be done. But... Um, there's always going to be another evil out there. I also think it's interesting what you say about um, Lecter and Gum being two sort of, you know, opposite sides of the same coin when, you know, Lecter's talking about, he writes that note on the map to say, doesn't this seem desperately random? And it feels almost like Gum is trying to do what he imagines a serial killer would do or what right. a serial killer is supposed to be doing. Um, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's something there where um, 
Yeah, with Gum, where he's like, because again, he's 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 feeding his own needs, right? He doesn't, mm-hmm. it, almost like Lecter, he doesn't necessarily view what he's doing as wrong. Yeah. Um, because it's satisfying his own needs. But he's also trying to like fit the mold of what he knows he is. Yeah. Um, but Lecter, Lecter's not interested in, in that. He's not yeah. interested in labels. He just is who he is. Yeah. And um, the world has to adapt to that. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff, man. Interesting stuff. So, um, wow. A lot of good analysis. Yeah. <laughs> Do we want to move into our next section? Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. Miss Mo, what is our next section? Our next section is legacy. Legacy. What is a legacy? Um, yeah. And amongst legacies, I mean, this film is up there in terms of legacies. Um, (laughs) The sort of like forensic-based police procedural type dramas that we see today, um, you know, don't necessarily stem from this alone, um, but it's definitely a huge um, influence on you know, things you're going to see that come after it. Um, And it's part of what makes the dumb new show Clarice so funny, because it's like Clarice is doing Silence of the Lambs. God! Um, I have not seen it. I don't care to. Yeah. Um, We'll get to that. Yeah, Silence of the Lambs is interesting, though, because, you know, you put this here, and it it, um, kind of is in a similar way as The Exorcist, where I feel like audiences today aren't finding it shocking or horrifying the way audiences at the time did because it is so influential and everyone's then, you know, making things in response to it or because of it. Um, You know, and now people watch Silence of the Lambs and aren't as, like, you know, shocked by it or what have you. Um, I know, and it's like, that, for me, and you can talk, we can talk about a few mm -hmm. weeks ago, it's like, I get... I understand where that that comes from, but I get kind of sad and frustrated when I see those reactions from maybe people that are younger than us Mm -hmm. or even people our age who are like, the exorcist isn't scary or like silence of the lambs is boring. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) no, don't you get it? Yeah. But yeah, it's like, okay, it's because you've been exposed to X, Y, and Z. But mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z wouldn't have existed without yeah. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as many people probably know, big Halloween costume every year is Hannibal Lecter and his little mask. Uh-huh. Um, it's always a big deal. Um, as we mentioned, um, because of the time frame that this came out in, it was one of the few Oscar films to like be readily available um, to like uh, just a wide audience at home by the time the Oscars were rolling around, um, which yeah. is interesting. It was released re- released released on VHS in October, uh, 1991. It came out in February. Um, it became the most rented video of all time on its release. I believe that. I feel like I remember at Blockbuster, like it yeah. constantly being out. Um, <gasps> It would later be released onto DVD in 2001, March of 2001, by MGM. 
Um, the Criterion Collection has released it three times. Yeah. Um, once on a Laserdisc. Remember Laserdiscs? In 1994. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, a special edition DVD in 1998. And then a Blu-ray, which Mr. Craigers has, it looks like, in 2018. I bought it um, somewhat recently when we, like... Maybe it was before we figured out we were going to do this. Oh, I bought it because the 30th anniversary mm-hmm. was in February of the film. Yeah. And then I was like, I should get the Criterion. <laughs> yeah. That's how I feel about a lot of things. I'm like, I could get this or I could get the Criterion. <laughs> I know. Um, the I Ameri- have a list of all of the horror movies that Criterion has done, and I'm slowly making my way so that I have all of them. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Um. The American Film Institute ranks it as one of its 100 greatest films of all time. It is number 65 on the original 1998 list, and it got bumped to 74 on the 2007 list. Um, it ranks number five on their list for like greatest thrills, um, which is kind of like their horror thriller list. Um, for their list of 100 greatest heroes and villains they have Clarice Starling at number six on the heroes and Hannibal Lecter as number one for the greatest movie villain of all time Let's I believe beating a- out Darth Vader at number two yeah Darth Vader's number two I want to say the Wicked Witch of the West is number three mm-hmm. and then I think Nurse Ratched is in there in the top five I can't remember who else um I a part of me wants Vader at number one. I know, right? It's tough. But another part... Because I'm like, it's Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah, but another part of me really understands why they went with Lecter. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's two, like, just really insanely iconic villains. It's tough. It's really tough. And, and, and I think, and I bet with villains, I have an idea that it was a lot harder yeah. to, to rank them because villains tend to be a lot more iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I bet that I, I have a feeling it was really close. However, they decided it. Um, I do believe in terms of number one heroes, it was Atticus Finch. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, the quote, a, where he says a census ranker, <laughs> or a, a census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. <laughs> <laughs> was ranked number 21 on the Institute's list of greatest movie quotes, which notes, Hello Clarice is not something he ever says in the film. Never. Likewise, never. Darth Vader never says, Luke, I am your father. No, he does not. Um, often misquoted. Some quotes on the greatest movie quotes list have been misquoted. Yes. Um, the original movie poster of it was named the greatest movie poster of the past 30 years when it came out by the Key Art Awards. It's a great poster. It is. It's the cover Miss Mel was referring to mm-hmm. at the beginning of the episode on the, the VHS with the, the moth. Yeah, it's Clarice's face and then the, the death's head little moth. scary moth. Which, did you read that those moths were like treated insanely well? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they had a handler. Yeah, they had a handler. They got, like, special makeup because they weren't the actual moth they were supposed to be in the film. They had to paint. Right. Uh, or, like, yeah. put them in little bodysuits and then paint on the bodysuits the, the skull. I did see that. And there was something, like, that, um, there's 
a couple scenes where I guess it's real moths and it was talking about like the heating conditions mm-hmm. that had to happen on set in order to let them out. And then there's like, I think, I think it's the scenes when like, um, gum Buffalo Bill is walking through his lair and you can see the moths in the background. Mm-hmm. Those are fake moths. Yeah. And then like the close ups are all real. Yeah. Um, I love Stories about animals on set are always <laughs> fascinating. You're always going to come across a good story. Yeah. Um, Bravo ranked the film seventh on its list of 100 scariest movie moments. Um, numerous Wait. other... What? Oh, sorry. The next time you and I hang out, can yeah. we watch that Bravo countdown? Yeah. Let's do Because it. it is... It's so entertaining. What is vaccines... Vaccines... What are vaccines for if not for doing that? If not for that. Um, Wait, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm like, I was like, sorry. I'm like, I didn't. <laughs> uh, uh, numerous other lists, publications, and organizations have included the film on their greatest uh, all-time rankings. People, Entertainment Weekly, AMC, The Works. The Works. Um, the uh, Library of Congress deemed it um, culturally, historically, aesthetically significant, quote-unquote, that's what they call it, when they put films in the National Film Registry. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the film has some sequels, um, which I always, I said this before we started recording, I found it fascinating that Hopkins agreed to do these various sequels. Uh-huh. Um, Hannibal comes out in 2001, directed by Ridley Scott which starred Hopkins reprising his role in Julianne Moore, who took over the role of Clarice. Oh, man. Have you seen Hannibal? I've seen bits of it. I haven't seen the whole thing. God, it's a really frustrating movie. Yeah. Um, there are two prequels, Red Dragon by Brett Ratner, uh, which came out in 2002. Hopkins, once again, reprised his role. And Norton, as we mentioned, played um, Will Graham. And Ray Fiennes, Voldemort, is also in that. <laughs> and then uh, Hannibal Rising by Peter Weber in 2007, uh, starring Gaspard Ulliel as young Lecter. I've only seen that once. I saw it in theaters. There was a guy I went to high school with who would talk about it all the time. Hannibal Rising? Yeah, he, was, he weirdly had seen it and was into it. I don't remember a ton of it. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> Um, probably most recently famous for all you out there is the character of Lecter was adapted to Brian Fuller's Hannibal, which ran for three seasons on NBC between 2013 and 2015, starring Mads Mikkelsen as Lecter. Very creepy. Uh Um, Hugh Dancy as Will Graham. Um, and it acted sort of as a prequel, um, to what goes on in Red Dragon, um, while incorporating various elements of uh, the other films, um, and it was cancelled before it could get to what would become the uh, events that happened in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, and that goes back to the, the struggle with the rights, mm-hmm. um, a lot of it, as well as no one was really watching the show when it was on, aside from, like, me. Jamie. <laughs> you and Jamie. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, recent, even more recently, (laughs) another adaptation of the sort of IP, um, 
has come about um, with Alex Kurtzman and Jenny Lumet's Clarice, which um, I've heard ads for in a lot of podcasts I listen to for whatever reason. They're really pushing the podcast yeah. ad circus. Um, it's on CBS. You can watch CBS All Access, uh, starring Rebecca Breeds as Clarice Starling. It's set um, like a year after the events of the Silence of the Lambs. What I take from the ads is that Clarice is being sort of like ostracized by the FBI and doubted by her peers after the events. She's also reeling from, you know, the events in Buffalo Bill's basement and that sort of thing and has to get through that. From what I understand, it's just a police procedural. That's what I gather too. Um, And again, because of complications of the rights, mm-hmm. which are broken up in this franchise between MGM and the Dino De Laurentiis company, this Clarice series cannot include or make any reference to Hannibal Lecter. That's a now, handicap. Kurtzman says that this is liberating because the team have no interest in writing about Hannibal. Which I find very hard to believe, and I feel like you're just saying that because you can't do it in the first place. And also, that's such like a a handicap to portraying Clarice's character after Silence of the Lambs, to not be able to reference him at all. Yes, I was reading this one review after the series premiered. I think it's been, there's been like at least, I don't know, it's been around for like a month at least now, right? Oh, yeah. But, like, I think after the first one, I saw people tearing it apart because, like, since they can't reference Lecter, there's something in the premiere episode when they're trying to establish, like, whatever, it's a year later, Mm -hmm. and things that happened in Silence of the Lambs with Buffalo Bill, and there's some sort of quip about therapy, and Clarice says something about, like, well, the last therapist I saw was, like, some dumb joke. Yeah about Lecter because that's all they can do about him. And for that just really makes me angry for some <laughs> reason. Um, but from what I've seen, it's um, it's not getting good reviews. No, I've seen it's getting really bad reviews. Not even like mixed, just like bad. Yeah, like a lot of people are calling it bland. A lot of people are calling it like just any other procedural and like way too safe. And it's like if you're working in this world, like you have a lot of really incredible material to draw on. And mm-hmm. I, I guess they're not drawing on any of it. Yeah. Bummer. Yeah. Well, if anyone out there is watching Clarice, let, and us, you know. want to it, let us know, but we're not interested. No. Now, we like to do a segment on our episodes called The View from the Closet, which is um, where we ask ourselves, how can we view the film we're discussing from an LGBTQ plus lens? But I think we've covered that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And we will, before we get to our closing question, we'll finish up with our One Good Scare segment. Everybody is entitled to One Good Scare. What do we as the host of Spider Chatter, feel is the most frightening moment of this film. What is the most frightening moment to us from the silence of the lambs? So the thing for me that I always dread when watching this is the scene where um, Brooke tries to get the dog 
when she tries to capture the dog and drag it because I guess she wants to try and eat the dog or something. She's starving. Um, or wants to hold well, the dog. I think she wants to hostage um, or something. Yeah, the hostage thing. Um, yeah. That always freaked me out because I'm like, don't hurt the dog, which sucks because we're in a movie, you know, where there's a bunch of humans getting like brutally <laughs> tortured and mutilated, and I'm just like, I draw the line and oh my god, don't hurt the dog. Um, but that always just creeped me out in like you know her desperation and that sort of thing. And I mean, I guess it, it might be any scene in that well as well because you know when she is like calling out for her mom and stuff like that oh that's that's really hard yeah um yeah i would agree you know when she's i want to go home i want my mom yeah that always makes me think about like real people that have been in that situation which evidently the fbi really praised um that bit where she says, like, I want to go home, I want to see my mommy, and that sort of thing. Because they were like, no, that's, like, what, you know, that's what goes on in these situations. Like, people just really become very, like, honest. Yeah, and, yeah, there was was something in the commentary where John Douglas mentioned, like, a lot of um, captives uh, revert to an almost infantile state. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, where it is like that, I, I want my mommy. You know, yeah. I want I want to go home, which um, is really hard to think about. Yeah, um, yeah. I would I would agree that scene really gets to me and scares me, um, particularly the moment when um, he's like he's pulling the lotion back up, you know, and there, there's like a flash of light, and she sees the bloody claw marks. Mm-hmm. on the wall of all the previous women that have tried to escape. Yeah. That is really disturbing to me. Yeah. Um, that's unsettling. I think that's my one good scare. Cool. So, wow. Um, well, we're now going to move into our closing question. Um, and, and wrap up this discussion, which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah. Um, we've finally done it. Uh, Miss Mel, it's, it's your turn. How are you, what are you closing us out on? Um, I had a couple ideas. I think, I don't know, because I kind of want to go with the same one that you posed earlier to Matt, but I feel like we can't beat him being like, oh yeah, I'd serve him. I know his answer was so good. Um, you know, and I'm always inclined to think about this stuff where it was like, okay, like say in a world where we were just okay with this being remade, you know, like who would you be okay with to see in those two leading roles? Oh shit. Which is tough to think about. Okay. Okay. I feel like the Tumblr answer is like Benedict Cumberbatch is as like Hannibal Lecter. That is the Tumblr. And Karen Gillan as Clarice. Oh my god. <laughs> you know who oh, I think would be god. interesting as a as Clarice, just because I think she does interesting stuff would be um Florence Pugh. Florence Pugh would be an interesting Clarice. I feel like she could do it. I feel like she could do it. Gosh. 
in a world where they would remake it, which I don't want. No, and it's like, how do you recast Hannibal Lecter? Exactly. Without just trying to cast somebody who reminds you of Anthony Hopkins. Uh, right. Okay. But but in a world where it was going to happen. Okay. Um. I. Thinking of some funny answers. Would cast. Suddenly, I'm like, who are actors? Right. Um, Ooh, what about uh, like I would like to see. Oh, what about like Idris Elba? <laughs> Ooh, wouldn't that be freaky? That would be freaky. He could do a good lector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You. Yeah. I'm picturing it, and I like it. Yeah. What were you gonna say? I was gonna say that I. I think I would like to see, even if like um, like Brian Fuller was able to bring back Hannibal, or in a remake, um, mm-hmm. Elliot Page playing Clarice. Interesting, gender swap. Yes, and actually, I could see that. <laughs> and Just... actually, I would like to see that casting, but also having the character Clarice being written as trans okay because i think that would be really fun Mm -hmm. and interesting um to tell the story now especially with yeah yeah that could be interesting i could also see just like i could see the the like deadpan stare that he like has (laughs) yeah right (laughs) just like i'm not interested i'm not i don't have patience for this (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah I think he could bring something to Clarice that uh, we we don't get from Foster's performance and right. not that we have to yeah no that would I mean like the, the exercises to recast it in today's hey, right today's world yeah Le- Lecter's harder I, I love the idea of Idris Elba though yeah and I th- and I think just because the character of Lecter is so much bigger, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, but I like Idris Elba. Yeah. Let's go with that. He's got the charisma. He's got the fatherliness. He's got the... Right. Right. I'm the also danger. Wondering... I'm, I, I also think maybe, um, maybe Sam Rockwell. Okay. Oh my god, that would be so creepy. <laughs> yeah, right. In a different way. <laughs> in a different way. In a different way. But, yeah. I could see that. That I think would be good and would play well. Yeah. And if not, cool. Sam Rockwell would be good for, like, Chilton. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. And then, like, you do someone like, um, hmm. I was, I was going to try, I was trying to think of somebody for Crawford, but then nobody actually sprung to well, mind. unfortunately, Miguel Ferrer has passed away. Yeah. J.K. Simmons. All right. J.K. Simmons! <laughs> Could do a great Crawford. Okay, we got it. We got it. All yeah. right, all right. We're there. We're there. We're there cool yeah 
Well, I think that's going to close the books. Yeah. On what is potentially our longest episode. You don't want to know how long this episode is. I don't want to know. I do want to thank everybody who has listened so far. And because you have stuck with us, we will do a very quick outro. Um, You can find and support Splatter Chatter on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at Splatter Chatter 666. If you just search us on any of those platforms, we pop up no matter what our weird configuration is. Yeah. You can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash splatterchatter666. And you can find us at splatter-chatter.com for um, further content, which look forward to in May. I have mm-hmm. a plan. Um... If you're interested in a discussion of other horror films that have received Oscar attention, please take a listen to episode 19, which is award-winning horror that we released in 2017. Our next episode in May. Do we want to announce it? Are we committing yeah, to it? Yeah, why not? Okay. Accountability. Well, it was your idea, Miss Mel, so... You tell them. So in honor of May in the U.S. being the month that has um, Mother's Day, we are going to take a look at the mothers of horror um, rather than doing a sort of deep dive into a specific um, piece of media. We're just going to look at all the the various, our favorite moms in horror um, as murderous or comforting as they may be. And I think that's going to be a pretty fun discussion. Yeah. So be on the lookout for that. Bring your mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and until then, we want to remind you to keep up the creep. And for now, we will say au revoir, adios, 